This is iFanboy 2022 All Media Year End Roundup, brought to you by iFanboy listeners just like you. I love those J-I-N-G-L-E bells. Oh, those holiday J-I-N-G-L-E bells. Oh, those heavenly J-I-N-G-L-E B-E-L-L-S. I love those J-I-N-G-L-E Jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Hello, welcome to the iFanboy 2022 All Media Year and Roundup. My name is Connor Kilpatrick, and I'm here with Josh Flanagan. What's up? And our old pal, Ron Richards. Hello, friends. Uh, this is the moment I've been looking forward to all year. We are the original iFanboy. Still here. Wait, original, is there a, original are there knockoffs? Still here after... Uh, <laughs> There was After that one knockoff, remember? <laughs> there were, yeah. There, there were knockoffs, yeah. I don't even remember what their name was, but there was that knockoff show. All right. Anyway, that was a long time ago. Anyway. We are a fanboy, and we like comic books, and we talk about them every week on the Pick the Week show. We also like a lot of other things. We watch a lot of movies and TV shows, read books and listen to music and do all those fun things. And since basically we started the show, at the end of 2005, 2006, we started doing this year-end all-media show, which we talk about the things we've been enjoying outside of comics. It's fun. We like to give a spoiler warning. This isn't really that kind of show, but there might be a spoiler. We're, we're not going to try to spoil anything, but it could happen. <laughs> we're not like breaking down anything. We're just talking about what we like, and but we might say something that if you haven't seen it. So here's who the killer is in Glass Onion. So <laughs> just in case, there, here's your mild spoiler warning. There may be something, but we try not to do that in this show. It's more about celebrating the things we enjoyed throughout the year of 2022. So use the spoil, uh, no, use the spoil notes. Use the show notes. Just in case. But let's get going. This is a long show. we got a lot to do. Let's dive right in and start, as we always do, with movies. And here is your standard movies disclaimer. You're hearing this. You listeners are hearing this mid to end, yeah, mid to end, end of December, yeah. maybe even early January. We, the hosts, are recording this very, very, very early in December. So there's a lot of big movies coming out in between that time that we won't talk about. You know, like we're not going to be able to talk about Avatar, things like that. So that's just the way it is. We have to record this early because it takes a long time to do. And keep in mind that all three of us are brokenhearted. We won't be talking about I Avatar. <laughs> Looks crazy. Likely will be yeah. more movies that are considered 2022 that due to timing. Yeah, it's just, really, it's just the way it goes. That's the way love goes. Is that how that song goes? <laughs> no. Let's jump into it, Ron, though. Yeah. The biggest movie of the year. All right, yeah, the biggest movie of the year. I can't say it's necessarily my favorite movie of the year, but uh, it was the biggest movie of the year, and I and it would be remiss to to talk about this without uh, acknowledging how much fun in the movie theaters with my wife and my sister and my brother in law we had going to see Top Gun Maverick. I went in, you know, somewhat snarky, as you you could probably imagine what my response would be for it, and went into saying, you know, like, oh God, you know, because we all know about these remakes and. All the, you know, and, and the reboot and all this sort of stuff that we're going through with Hollywood. But I got to say, they pulled it off and we had a hell of a time at the theater and it was a ton of fun and it hit all the right notes. And there's a reason why it's going to be the number one movie of the year, I think. It's still running in the theaters. I went to the movies the other yeah, night. It's, still, it's there. still there or it came back at least, you know. Top Gun Maverick, Bravo. Tom Cruise is an insane person. I had my fill of close up shots of him being slammed against the side of the cockpit. But Miles Teller, everything that went with it, I was on board for it, despite my desire to be contrarian and make fun of it. It, it, was, was, it was a hell of a only ton, film ton of fun. we all three of us saw in the theaters this year, probably. Is it? Probably. Was it? You know. All right. 
I'll believe I that. I saw it twice. Really? It's great both times. Yeah. Is it the only one of these, like, let's review these characters 20 years later thing that's actually been very, very good? I don't know if it's the only one, but it's the, definitely the biggest. Spotting uh, 2 was fantastic. It was very good. But it wasn't as culturally impacted. What do I care? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, this, this was a movie that, like, everyone went to see. Like, yeah. you know, everyone saw Spider-Man, but, like, this was, like, a cultural event. Yeah, this was a culture. Everyone at work was talking about it. Like, it's like the return of the monoculture for exactly. one more brief shining moment. All yep. thanks to Tom Cruise, who was going to die for our sins. Yeah, crazy person. But, yeah, it was fun. Hard to, hard to deny it. Hard to deny it. I had a lot of fun at Top Gun Maverick, and I think the other movie this year that I had the most fun seeing was Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, which played for one week as a preview yep. before it goes to Netflix, probably by the time you hear the show. And both times, packed house, both times, audience super into it, both times, awesome time at the movies. It like, reminded me of why yeah. I love going to the movies beyond almost anything else in media, is going to see a packed movie with a bunch of people who are really into it and having a great time. And especially a movie like Glass Onion, which is a sequel to Knives Out, and we're not going to spoil it because most people haven't seen it, but extremely funny. And that audience was roaring the entire time. Well, I will say very funny. I love. I mean, the not the first Knives Out movie was the like the sleeper. Hundred million dollars. I feel like that year. Yeah. Well, no, but I remember seeing it and like not knowing. Yeah. I went to see it in the theater. I'm like Ryan Johnson. Oh, all right. Let's see what this is. And like walking out of it, going, that was fantastic. And it was like we. I'm sure we talked about it on we the did, show. Yeah. It was like. Yeah, one of the most like, you know, not based on IP, you know, fun time at the movie going into this one. I saw in the theater as well that weekend and I was a little trepidatious going into it because I was concerned like, okay, now it's part of a franchise now and it's got a lot of expectations. And I will say the first third of the movie, I hated it. Oh, wow. But then, and I don't, and I, and I don't know the exact moment it happened, but like the first, it turned a corner and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And I was on board for the rest of the movie and loved it. Like it was, it well, was that happened fantastic. To me with the first one, with the second act, I didn't like it in the second act. It was just because it's so twisty. You're just like, yeah. what? you're trying to wrap your head around where it's going, what's happening. And- I, yeah, and I don't mean to spoil it. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but the, 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 Connor, the opening scene when we see Daniel Craig and he's on it, you know, because part of it was like, it does take place in real time. So it takes place during the pandemic. Yeah. Right. And so that was part of it. I'm like, oh, pandemic, like whatever, you know. And part of it is that the uh, that character who we became so enamored with in Benoit the first Blanc. movie, Benoit Blanc, who we become so enamored with in the first movie, it elevated him early on to a point that just made my eyes roll. But once we got past that and got into the mystery, it was like fantastic. It was great. You know, there's been a lot of talk. It was a huge success in this one week test and it made $15 yeah. million dollars in, in just 650 theaters for seven days. I think it was. It shows you the culture tied into that first film and wanted to yep. see the second one. And I was very skeptical because I loved that. I saw the original one twice in the theater also. Yeah. I was very skeptical that they would be able to recapture the magic, but I think they did a really good job. You don't need to brag about how much you can do. just how much I liked it. Was I, well, let's go back to it. <laughs> no, <I know. laughs> it recaptured the magic, but with a different twist on the formula. Yep. That's how you have, he's going to have to do it with the third one he's going to do for Netflix. So I, I was really, I was really happy to see it. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Great so, time in the theater. Everyone was into it. Yeah, I bought tickets when they went on sale because I didn't want to miss it, and like, and, and I was keeping an eye on the theater to see if it was filling up. And like a week before, it was still empty, and I was like, "Oh, nobody's gonna go see it in my stupid little town." But I was happy to see that like the theater was packed by that Saturday night, so it was good. awesome. I hate when theaters are packed now. I know. Yeah, I do too, actually. But <laughs> most movies I saw this year, I was one of four people in the theater, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> you can put your feet up, you know. Yeah, it's nice. I feel like I didn't get to see a lot of movies this year, but I eventually did fill out my five slots and last week we caught don't worry darling and i all i knew was that people were talking about it 
and I had no idea what it was. Those are the two things I knew. Let's really dig into the controversy. Is this the one that the Olivia Wilde directed? Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. Yep. Florence Pugh. M. Night Shyamalan doing a Stepford Wives. Kind of. It's, it's kind of, I had no idea what it was going to be. Basically, Florence Pugh and Harry Styles. I'm trying to figure out a way to talk about it without just saying what happens and what it is. Because I, I don't spoil it. Because that's yeah. no. But basically, it's a it's a mystery. It's nearly sci-fi. It's not quite. I thought I did a really good job of the mystery as a person who came in with no concept of what it, it was. Like the only you have a sense like things are off here, and you can't quite figure out why. You know, Florence Pugh is becoming one of my favorite actresses. I think she's fantastic. Oh, she's amazing. She's fantastic. And Harry Styles is actually fantastic. And then and at one point, like Chris Pine shows up and, and I love Chris Pine. Like he showed up and I was like, oh, and Lindsay's like, why do you like him? I was like, Coast just Guy do. So you got to go come back in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from the first time we saw him in Star Trek and I just he's got a ton of range and he's really and he was like a creepy, creepy dude. And it was a really unique film. And I came out of it just thinking, well, Olivia Wilde, very different movie than was it? Booksmart she did? Booksmart, yep. Yeah. Very different kind of film. Really well directed and made, I thought. Well, Ron, it's shot in Palm Springs. The whole, and it's oh, all really? mid-century yeah. modern design and clothes and cars. So you, I, I feel like design. there was a lot of controversy with this movie, right? Yes, Wasn't there, there was a lot yeah. of controversy. Yeah. Movie, yes. yeah. But it's it's from the design standpoint, Ron, you would love just looking at it. It's, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I love it. mid-century modern porn. Awesome. Yeah, it definitely is. But I enjoyed it. I did. I thought it was really well done. Well, I got to say, like you, Josh, this year probably I went to the least amount of movies in the theater uh, upon mo- most recent years, even compared to earlier years when my kids were younger. And also, it was just, it was just a weird year for movies, I thought. I got to say, if I'm hard-pressed, though, to pick my movie of the year, it would be Everything Everywhere All at Once. And it can only be described as like a cinematic experience. Yes. Right. <laughs> did you see it in the theater? I saw it in the theater. Yeah, for sure. I did too. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, you've got to see it in the theater. I don't necessarily think mm-hmm. that you have to see this movie in the theater. Obviously, I'm glad I did because I like that the non distractions of the theater better than watching from home. But the reason why this is a cinematic experience is because it balances between the middle age malaise. I want to say coming of age, but at a later point in life, you know, you know, having kids and stuff like that, mixed with a science fiction alternate universe twist that is so done so cleverly, done so elegantly in a way that we've never seen before. It was just so delightful to watch. It was just so delightful to watch. And like you literally don't know what to expect minute to minute throughout the film. The fantastic performance by the guy who who was uh, Data and Goonies and Short Round in Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. I've, uh, Kate, well, I forget his name. Kei Hua Kwan, he just won Kei an Hua award Kwan. at the Gotham. Yep. Yeah, but it's like Michelle Yeoh's film. Like it's like. Oh yeah, a, oh no, like of course, yeah, Michelle, yeah, yeah, no, Michelle Yeoh is it, well, she's established already as amazing. Like, the, uh, but it is her film. She is fantastic in it. But it was, I was saying, it was great to see him yes, after all he these was years. Awesome. Yeah. And he was very good in yeah. it. Yeah, he was great in it. But the movie is touching and like personal, but also like out there and crazy and action packed and exciting. It, it hits so many notes. It kind of blew me away. It was brilliant. It was in so many different ways, little bits. Uh, there's details about it that were great. I think every performance, uh, especially the two leads, was absolutely top notch. At one point, I was like, I forgot I was looking at Michelle Yeoh, and I thought it was just this beat down yeah. Chinese lady, you know, who wasn't an international martial arts superstar. So, like when she started fighting, I was like, Well, how the hell can she do that? And I was like, It's Michelle yeah. Yeoh. I mean, I mean, just in terms of just being unexpected, and you spend the first third of the movie not knowing what the heck is going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. And that could be frustrating for some people. And this was not in a frustrating manner, if that makes any sense, you know? And let's give it up for Jamie Lee Curtis. 
Yeah. She was really good too. Yeah. Yeah, Really, really good. Great time at the movies. Just so so much fun. I was sitting and watching the Fablemans and about halfway through, I had a thought that this may be the last time I see a film like this in the theaters. Why? It's a coming of age story about a family that's coming apart. Well, this guy who's Steven Spielberg, because it's it's his autobiography basically is learning who he is as a person and what he loves. And it's a big budget, big time director doing a small story about a family. And I thought, well, this is probably it for this kind of movie with that kind of pedigree in the theater. It's so fatalist, man. That's so sad. Well, just because those kind of movies aren't being made unless Steven Spielberg says, I'm making a movie about my family. Yeah. And so I had that thought while watching it. But this was terrific. This was, uh, as I said, Steven Spielberg's basically his fictionalized autobiography about growing up in a family that has problems, but you don't realize for quite a while. And But while he's figuring out his love of film and cinema and making movies, and there's all these glorious sequences in the movie about him making these Super 8 films with his buddies. And you just kind of want that to be the whole movie. You're just like, wow. You know, you can feel the joy of this kid figuring out how, first of all, good he is at this, but also how much this makes him feel good. And just watching him figure out how to make movies with the little Super 8 Bolex camera like we used in college. Mm-hmm. It was great. That was great. And then wonderful performances from Michelle Williams and from Paul Dano and from various actors playing the kids, including Julia Butters from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. is just so much better of an actress than not anybody else her age. And a surprising cameo at the end that Ron will love. Don't tell me. Don't, don't I'm not going to say it. Does it have to be two hours and 30 minutes? No. That's like short for a movie now. Ugh. And that's my criticism for a lot of movies I saw this year. That's why I didn't see it before we recorded here because I was I, because I'm tight on time and also like I'm like all right cool you know Monday night I can sneak away to the movies and because it's a two and a, two and a half hour film yeah. the latest showing was like six forty five I was like yeah. damn it you know and if not then you're home at one a.m. Right yeah exactly which is yeah which yeah uh, uh, so oh how things have changed in fifteen years guys <laughs> so oh. but this was wonderful very unexpected very unspielbergy he's unflinching and. I mean, again, it's a fictionalization, but it's everyone knows it's not. And the details yeah. are pretty much lined up with what he said about his family in interviews. He's unflinching, basically, in, in portraying his parents and family and the issues they have. And it's a family story. There's no bad guys. There's no good guys. It's just all just human beings who have, have foibles and faults. And, yeah. and Is it worth seeing? I, lo- I thought it was really terrific. I Do really I have did. to see it in the theater? Or? No, you don't have to see it in the theater. I know. Okay. I always appreciate Spielberg on the big screen because he shoots a film like nobody else. Yeah. I remember seeing the trailer for the outfit. And thinking, oh, that that looks interesting and different than other stuff. And I caught it a little while back. And basically, it's a one-room play about this sort of older British tailor. And he's mixed up in crime in, I don't want to say, I think it's Chicago. This is not a Parker story. No. This isn't Westlake? Okay. You know, there's a whodunit mystery element, you know? And it's just one of those stories that unfurls really nicely, has sort of a cool and strong resolution at the end of it as things come together you know and, and mark rylance is you know to say that he's fantastic is you don't have to say understatement it, yeah. but everybody else in it like there's not really any names in this movie it's actors it's like character actors and and just wonderful performances there's these two sort of younger gangsters played by johnny flynn and dylan o'brien and you know they were just menacing and really scary and a nice little compact picture. I'm wondering what the runtime is now that I say that. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it was a 245. <laughs> you know, like a play, a period piece, you know, with really lovely performances and, and a great plot. I think it's definitely worth it. 145. 
145. Hmm. That's that's nothing. Listen, I, I just want to say, like, it's fun to joke about, but it's the old Roger Ebert quote. A good movie is never long enough and a bad movie is never short enough. And I don't have a problem with a long movie if it's really good. But some of these movies are pushing a little bit. Yeah, right there with you. Yeah. As I was watching Armageddon Time. Are you sure that's not a bad religion album? <laughs> I was actually thinking, uh, Connor and Josh, you guys know me pretty well. I feel like I have to add historical drama set in Queens in the 80s as one of my go-to genres. Sure. Because I didn't even realize going into it that I was like, oh, here I am again in 1980 in, <laughs> in, in, in Queens, but here we are. <laughs> Actually, Armageddon Time, I was pleasantly surprised. It was one of those coming-of-age movies where nothing happens and yet everything happens, you know, where literally like you join a family at a certain point of time and you just, you watch what happens over that period of time and then you see how it progresses and then you just kind of move on. That's Fableman's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Directed by James Gray, who did Ad Astra. Mm-hmm. Remember that Brad Pitt space movie? That yep. one was too long. But one of the notable things was cast-wise, you know, it's got Anthony Hopkins as the grandfather, Anne Hathaway as the mom, and Jeremy Strong from Secession uh, as the dad. And I've only seen Jeremy Strong in two kinds of roles, which is the fast-talking supporting role, like in the what's the the the, 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 the stock the big short, right? Yeah. And then in Succession, right? And so like I'm like, oh, that's the kind of guy he plays. And but yet we've read all the articles about he's crazy method actor and blah blah blah. And then here I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. Like he, it took me several scenes. I'm like, oh wait, that's Jeremy Strong. He's got incredible range. Yeah, in, really in, uh, great with range. The Sorkin movie from last year. Yep. Chicago Seven. Yeah. Right, so right, 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 right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. When he played the not Abby Hoffman, the other guy. Yeah. Mainly, it was that Michael Banks Rapita was the kid who played a you know a thirteen year old who's like trying to or I think he actually even maybe younger but uh, trying to find his way in the world and you know is a Jewish kid in Queens and makes friends with a black kid and gets in troubles after smoking pot and gets has to go to a private school where it's all white kids and they you know like and it's just like it talks about race and culture and and the positioning of New York as that melting pot at that time period before Reagan is elected as president and yeah it's just you know like like I said nothing happened in it you know you just you just saw several weeks in the life of this kid but yet it was so relatable. You know, especially somebody who grew up, you know, in New York and on, on Long Island and near the city. It just, def- you know, even though that wasn't a big part of it, but it just felt comfortable. You know what I mean, Connor? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like when you see that sort of thing, right? Plus, we know that, that Queens has stamped out racism since then. So <laughs> yeah, thank, thankfully. It was so. sorted. <laughs> I very much enjoyed Armageddon Time, despite it being a bummer at times. But yeah. Well, that's a good transition. So The Banshees of Inishirin, written and directed by Mark McDonough, was a terrific film that I walked out of feeling terrible. <laughs> Isn't that the best? <laughs> it's just, I will say this. It was advertised and marketed in the trailers and the commercials as a quirky Irish comedy starring Colin <laughs> Farrell <laughs> and Brendan Gleeson. And that is not what it is. <laughs> and <laughs> and so it was about 20 minutes in. I was like, this is funny, but also I feel weird. And then at the end, I was like, oh, I'm depressed. <laughs> it's beautifully shot. It takes place on one of the Aran Islands of Inishirin during the Irish Civil War. And... It's about two lifelong friends. One of them decides he doesn't want to be his friends anymore and how that one decision basically unravels several lives on the island. At first comedically, and then by the end there's blood and there's mutilation and there's death. Jesus. Wonderful performances. It's Colin Farrell. You know, he showed up and he was a super handsome, charming Irish guy. And so they gave him all the super handsome, charming Irish roles, running around with Tom Cruise with guns and Al Pacino with guns. And then he clearly wasn't happy doing that. He's very, very good at these quirky character pieces. Yeah. And he's really good. And Brendan Gleeson, they were in In Bruges together. So they have this nice chemistry on screen. And they're both heartbreakingly good. 
there's several really good actresses in here, including Carrie Condon playing Con Farrell's sister and Barry Kugan, who that's not how you say his name, but I don't know how to say it. He's a heartbreaking character in the movie. It's just, it's a small movie. You know, there's like four sets, but wonderful performances, beautiful cinematography. It's just much darker film that I was prepared to see based on the marketing materials, uh, which isn't to say it's not very funny because it is, but it's also pretty We dark. had tickets to go see it one night and we had to cancel. And we were just like, oh, we'll, we'll do it later. It's definitely worth seeing. It's a great film, but it's just, yeah. oof, just be prepared. It's not a comedy. Yeah. It's existential. I don't remember seeing a film get marketed as heavily as Bullet Train. I feel <laughs> like I saw the trailer for Bullet Train for every movie I saw, regardless of audience or genre, mm-hmm. for months and months and months and months. And it came out, and then I never heard a thing about it. And I don't, I'm not even sure how it went over. I think it didn't do well. No, it did well. They did? Okay. It would have it to solid. with all that marketing. Yeah. But, you know, it showed up on, I guess it was HBO. And I was more curious than looking forward to it. I think I was trepidatious. But, you know, in the end, I thought it was super fun, really funny, inventive. This late era Brad Pitt is a joy. It's fascinating. To behold. He, like at first, I remember Lindsay was like, so he's sort of like Cliff. And I was like, no, no. Cliff was like calm and collected. And this guy it was such a weird character. I don't even know how to describe. Like he's a killer. He had stoner energy, zen. but he wasn't a stoner because yeah. he was trying to be like new age and and get past his problems and yeah. find it was you know serenity now whatever it was. He wanted to talk through all the problems, but if no one right. wanted to talk, he was prepared to take you out. So you had this this crazy cast. You know, it, it felt a little like a Guy Ritchie movie, but more wacky, I guess. You know, but then there were big action set pieces at the end. Huge, yeah. Every time there's a shot of the bullet train from the outside, I was like, that's rad. Every single time. And then like the end is a huge, like it really, it all comes together in, in such a cool way. It was like a, like a locked room mystery action movie where they're all yeah. on this train and almost all the action takes place on this train. So it's, it's just moving from yeah. car to car and, and fights and reveals and twists and yeah. I, had a great time. I saw in the theater. Really fun. Time. Yeah. And like uh, so many really fun, Some fun characters cameos. and performances. Yeah, they're cameos, but by, they're by people who I didn't know, so it didn't count. Not not all of them. Aaron Taylor Johnson is an incredibly versatile actor. Yes, he is. He always looks like a different person. Sort of like, what's his name from Blackbird? Like, he's a different person in everything. Aaron Taylor Johnson reminds me of that, too. Uh, anyway, super fun. I was really, really surprised yeah. by it. Really loved it. So the last movie I saw before recording, I actually literally just saw it last night, See How They Run, which I forgot about. I remember seeing the trailer and like, oh, I want to see that. And then while going through the list of movies for the year, I was like, oh, right, I want to watch that. I love Sam Rockwell, as you guys know, one of my favorite things. I also love, you know, with a little bit of a nod to Knives Out in terms of a murder mystery type, but albeit set historically, a murder mystery comedy set in uh, early 1950s in London. So you get Sam Rockwell as a slightly drunken Scotland Yard inspector with a mustache, Sorcerer Ronan as a young upstart constable. Basically, it's literally a murder mystery built around an Agatha Christie play, which is a nice little kind of Ouroboros of concept there. Yeah. You know, short, you know, hour and a half. (laughs) You also get Adrian Brody, which is always a pleasure. And you get a very fast paced, cleverly written, twist and turny kind of murder mystery that was just, you know, laughed out loud multiple times in in the movie and just like a fun distraction, you know, in that regard. Yeah, it had several recognizable British actors in it. Like it was one of those things. It was yeah. the, it was the trying to coast off of the Knives Out. Sure, you know, yeah, the, the conceit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Knives Out is a, at his heart an Agatha Christie story. Exactly. Anyway, yeah. So it's like yeah. the same thing. But this is actually, I mean, the play that they're talking about is a real play that's still playing today in London and is coming to Broadway next year. 
Yeah. The mousetrap. The mousetrap. It's all centered around the mousetrap. And it was super fun. I had a great time. I laughed and it was yeah. you know, enjoyable. I love Sam Rockwell so much. He's so great. Oh, God. He was very good in it. He's, he's, he's very good in everything. Yeah. Yeah. Devotion is a Korean war war movie, and uh, you know I'm a, Jesus love war movies. But you know it's interesting, as it says in the beginning, in the little like context building text. You know the Korean War is the forgotten war. You know it, it starts five years after the end of World War II. It ends five years before Vietnam, and we sort of forget about it. Like how often is Korean War portrayed on screen? It, so I'll ask you guys: What's the most famous piece of media related to Korean War? Mad Men, Mash. Match, yeah. Match, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But I guarantee you, if you ask 20 people on the street, first of all, if they've heard of Match, they would say it's about Vietnam. It's Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. We've forgotten that we had a fucking land war with China on the Korean Peninsula. Anyway, yeah. I thought this was terrific. This was, it was long. It's 220. But <sighs> Too long. It's, it's funny. It started Glenn Powell, who was also in Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> also flying jets here. And it featured the dogfight coordinator from Top Gun Maverick. It had terrific dogfights. But the star of the film is Jonathan Majors, who's sort of the it star of the moment. He's oh, yeah. Kang in Ant-Man. He's, he's in Creed. T- Creed. And yeah, yeah. I first remembered him from The Five Bloods on the Netflix film during the pandemic. He was really good in that. I remember thinking, who's that guy? Because I've never seen him before. Now you just see him everywhere because he's very good. And it's a true story about these two pilots who become friends. Uh, Jonathan Majors' character is the first black naval aviator. I'm not going to give it away. But it was really interesting. Both lead actors are really good. It took some twists and turns. It featured terrific 1950s dogfights and portrayals of the war. It had some surprises to it. It could have been 10 minutes shorter, but what movie can't? (laughs) They're both really good. Both leads are terrific, and it made me realize that I don't know enough about the Korean War. I know a lot about the World War II. I know a good amount about Vietnam. I know a good amount about Civil War. I know almost nothing about the Korean War. Is that your next project? Are you going to read it? Yeah, I think I would like to read a few books. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. I would. You know you have the Harry Truman biography around I do, there? yeah. I mean, he's in the That movie. has a really good explanation. The, the, like, the real, first real good explanation that I heard about it. Yeah. But basically, it was a bluffing game. Like, sure. the communists came up to a line, and we were like, you can't go to that line. So then we went up to that line. Yes. And then all hell breaks out. Yeah, they did talk about that a little bit. At one point, they're just for training when they were suddenly they're fucking fighting the Chinese in Korea. But it was terrific. Josh, you would really enjoy this movie. Uh, it made me tear up several times. It's funny at times. Mm-hmm. Really strong performances from, from everybody in the film, including a guy from the newsroom playing the jaded World War II veteran who leads their squad. And I was like, which guy from it. the newsroom? I don't remember his name, but he was like the main guy. You know, he was like kind of young at the time. Jeff Daniels. The guy with the brown hair, the yes. with the tie. The Broadway but, guy. Yeah, the Broadway guy. I like him a lot. He's really good. He was really good and really convincing as the only veteran of World War II and who leads the squad and has actual combat experience and it's so funny. That reminds me. Like, like it's it's fascinating how there are there are, you see actors and you wanna like watch more of them and then they just get lost to time. You know, right. you you just don't see what they were in. John Gallagher Jr., that's who you're talking about. Yeah, and he's he's great, but yeah, like you said, he went Josh, he's the Broadway guy, he's a theater yeah. guy, right? So like so like he did he did the newsroom and then went back to theater and like yeah, so it's interesting that he's in this this one. So. No, no, not that guy. Not that not guy. Not that guy? Oh. The other brunette guy. Sam Watterson? Yeah, it was Sam no, Watterson. No, Tom Sadas Thomas Sadowski. Thomas Sadowski, yeah. Oh, that guy. That guy's a yeah. I don't like that guy. <laughs> Is he not your kind of guy? <gasps> he's not my kind of guy. It, it sounds much better in Korean. Well, he's very good. <laughs> it does sound much better in Korean. <laughs> that guy, he's uh, not my kind of guy. 
All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Everything um, I know about the Korean War, I know from from Frank Costanza. <laughs> he wouldn't take his shoes off. <laughs> All the seasoning on the meat. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. It, it stands the test of time. It really does. I watch the whole thing like yeah. every couple of years. So I'm, that I'm, episode I'm is fantastic. Oh God. Now listen, Connor and I did a whole. I would say it was an emergency show uh-huh. about Moonfall and Geostorm. It was like, yes. we have to do this. It was a calling. But I think I would be remiss to not point out Moonfall one more time as the best in genre of the offering this year. Yes. The disaster movie from the guy who does the disaster movies. Roland Emmerich. Roland Emmerich, you know, and it had every element that I look for in one. I mean, literally every single thing that you're supposed to do because really hitting those notes. And really leaning into the cliche is what makes these movies work. So you you wait for those things to happen, which I guess is probably what people do with horror movies. You know, massive scale, one scientist above them all. Somebody uh, dies in the line of duty. The physics make no sense. And you uh. like it that way. And there's always, hey, there's that one guy from the thing. And it's Samuel Tarly. If you like a goofy disaster movie, if you like Emmerich's other oeuvres, this is not going to disappoint you in any way. Any film where the moon pops up behind a character like Mike Myers yep. is worth it. Mm-hmm. Is you know, worth we're going to ignore gravity. <laughs> Everything's fine. Where the scale's not right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's a delightful time if you're able to have fun with a thing like that. It's going to be exactly what you want. Yes, I agree. It was fun. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I loved the Fletch Chevy Chase movies of the 80s. And sure. I feel like there have been attempts to make another Fletch movie for, you know, 20 plus years now. You always hear you yeah. know, rumblings of another Fletch movie, another Fletch movie. Kevin Smith and Jason Lee were going to make one. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Back in the Kevin Smith days. Yeah. Yep. Thank God that didn't happen. So how delighted was I to see that someone actually finally made a Fletch film and it starred John Hamm. And it was a delightful time at the theater for me, at least. You can't go into it expecting the Chevy Chase formula or its style of comedy or that sort of thing. But John Hamm, I felt like he made it his own and, you know, created a twisty, turny mystery. You know, what is he doing? Why is he doing it? What's it going to be with quips in between? And it was a fun time. I, you know, admittedly didn't see it in the theater. I saw it at home, despite, you know, my desire to see it in the theater, but I missed the window. But even then, it was, you know, not the kind of movie that you have to see in the theater. No. But I could watch John Hamm read the phone book. I think he's hysterical. I caught this the other day, and I was actually, much like Connor said, I thought, I was like, we're never going to see a movie like this in the theater again. Yep. It was so, I'm saying this in a good way, it was so small stakes. Yep. It was just, I was like, this is an 80s movie. Well, this was like yes. every movie yep. in the 80s was like this. They don't make movies like this at all anymore. And I was I was kind of taken aback by that. And I thought, you know, it like the, the plot, whatever. It was just fun being there. Yeah, I mean, it's an art heist. It's an art heist. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. It had more plot than the original Flesh movie, which, you yeah. know, tries explaining that plot to anybody. It didn't yeah. really matter. Yeah. No, it, and, you know, just a. But no, John Hamm was fantastic. In fact, I thought he brought a lot more Chevy Chase to it than I expected. But in his own way, like he yes. didn't try. He wasn't. He yeah. wasn't impersonating Chevy Chase. No. He was being Fletch, which I, I think is a, is a subtle distinction. But he but he, he balanced it. The original film was a showcase for Chevy Chase's unique skills, and I think this is closer to what the books were from what I read. But yeah. this had a horrible trailer. If you recall, yeah. I, uh, I remember. It was a terrible, terrible trailer. And I remember thinking, oh, man, this is going to be a disaster. And I think I watched it on Showtime. And I was pleasantly surprised at how much fun I had 
And it wasn't just because, you know, the cast was really strong, and I'd like to see John Slattery and. and oh, I love Slattery. And, I love Slattery. And John Hamm together, even if it was filming for two I'm scenes. Pretty sure they were in the same newsroom where he, because he put <laughs> yes. the same character did in Spotlight. I was like, that's the that's the Spotlight <laughs> newsroom. <laughs> It actually was really fun, and I thought it was really enjoyable, and I thought it, it was funny, but also, you know, it was, the crime was interesting. and It was super fun. I, I really enjoyed it. And Kyle MacLachlan was good uh, in it. And, yeah. That scene with the stoner lady in her apartment, where just things keep getting worse and worse, and just <laughs> yeah. John Hamm's just reactions to it. Wonderful. Really great. I hope they make more, because I had a really good time watching it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, hope they, I hope this is the beginning of a, a run. Yeah. It can't have cost much. <laughs> Took place in Boston of all places. I mean, it was yeah. like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, totally, yeah. which made the Laker hat even funnier. Yeah. So I was visiting my grandmother for Thanksgiving, and uh, while there, I had a realization: oh, she's got a Roku box. Why did I say it like that? Roku. Roku. Why did I say it like that? I have no idea. I've never said that before in my life like that. Weirdo. She had a Roku box, and I thought, oh shit, the Weird Al movies on Roku. Yep. And so I watched it, and. For people our age, I think it's really hard to explain Weird Al to people who are younger than us. I watched this movie and I thought, if you're not from a certain time <laughs> and place, you're going to have no idea. You're going to think this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Right. Because I, 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 it, it was played 100% straight. Oh, it's <laughs> – yes. So I, I watched it and, and I was with my wife who's a little younger and she knew you know Weird Al from the songs. But I said, have you ever seen UHF? She said, no. I said, okay, well – because she wasn't enjoying the movie. I was loving it. I was laughing my head off during this uh, movie. Oh, but. Uh, Lindsay and I were over the moon. It was so fucking funny. I laughed my ass off. I thought it was nearly perfect. It was, it's a yep. one, it's 148, and it's, it's a straight up weird allification of a movie biopic about himself in which nothing is actually real. It's completely over the top, and it's delightful. And I think uh-huh. that, I was going to say Daniel Craig. Why was I going to say Daniel Craig? <laughs> that would have also Daniel been Radcliffe. Great. Daniel Radcliffe yeah. is having a really interesting and incredible post-Harry Potter career. He could just coast for the rest of his he life. He do whatever he wants. Didn't I like, read about his approach to his post-Harry Potter approach? Like he he was modeling – I read uh, – where was it? He was modeling some himself after somebody else. I forget what it is, but basically this, the story is that like he's independently wealthy. He does not need money for anything. So any acting job he does, he wants to do. But that's also like a lot of actors are like that. But he doesn't seem to need to please anyone. It's like, I'm going to do whatever right. interesting role comes along. Anyway, right, exactly. he was terrific as Weird Al. But he didn't play Weird Al. Right. As the character Weird Al in the movie. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, if, when I heard he was in, I was like, he's going to do an impersonation of Weird Al. And that is not what happened. I thought that was – it just – it was – those choices were so interesting. Toby Huss as his dad was great. Yep. Oh, got to love Toby Huss. Oh, I want to see this. It's real. You will love it. Who is the actress playing Madonna? Oh, Madonna. Oh, it's uh, Evan Rachel Wood. Yeah, Evan Rachel Wood was an incredible Madonna. I just, mm-hmm. She captured her energy, even if this was a crazy, <laughs> crazy yeah. Madonna. I mean, but it was it was exactly what her persona was at that time. Oh, for sure. Maybe not have been a real person, but she played that persona perfectly. I was like, oh, Madonna was really sexy back then. <laughs> All right, well, slow down. <laughs> you didn't have to the whisper makes it, feel Connor. It. I know, yeah, it was it was the whispering <laughs> that really, yeah. <laughs> this was so funny. Yeah. But yeah. again, I think it's only funny if you're like 38 to 40, like 49. Like it's just, it's such a specific time and place. And humor, Pick a random 18-year-old like, and you try to explain Weird Al's career to them and good luck. And they're just not going to, they're not going to like this movie. I mean, maybe they'll find it funny, but. 
there was a bit they kept doing where somebody would say something out loud and it was the lyrics to the song. Yeah. And it happened over and over again. And like, if you don't know the song, it's not funny. Right. Like there was a bit at the beginning when it, whatever his first song was, the My Bologna. My Bologna, yeah. And and like the the guy said the, the first line of it or first line of one of the verses or whatever. Laugh, my it was so it was super funny. If you have a, a a mobile device and you have the Roku app, you can watch it for free and you could then Oh yeah, no, you can you don't you don't need a Roku device to watch it. Yeah, you can you can just go to the Roku yeah. channel. Uh, if you have any sort of set top box, you can you can install the Roku app or whatever it is and still watch it. I just haven't done it yet. Well, Ron, you'll love if it. If you have a free, I know you don't have any time soon, but if you have a free two hours, it, I will this weekend. I'm planning on watching I mean, like, it tomorrow night. It just the kept fact escalating. That he loved it. Yeah, it, it did. It was great. At first, you're like, oh, this is funny. And then it kept escalating and escalating and escalating. And then by the end, you're just like, where can this possibly go? Yeah. And also, it was an amazing cast. Like, yes. no one said no to being in this. People took <laughs> little tiny parts. Like, there's a scene that's at a party. And it's all of these celebrities. It's all like the modern comedian. Like, yeah. Right. But even that, some of them are even bigger than that. Like, so it's just, but like everybody, like you're in the background looking like there's, there's Tiny Tim and there's uh, (laughs) Alice Cooper and there's Elton John. Yeah. Emo Phillips playing Salvador Dali. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Paul F. Tompkins and like everyone is. Of course, Paul F. Tompkins. Playing tiny roles in the movie. Diedrich Bader is the, the narrator. It was very funny. It was very, very funny. All right, I'm going I'm to watch it this weekend for sure. <laughs> so the weirdest movie I saw this year was probably Hustle, which was Adam Sandler's NBA fantasy film where he is an NBA scout who wants to be a coach and, and he, he's about to get bumped up to be an assistant coach finally. And the, the owner of the 76ers dies and passes the business to his son. And his son's like, no, you got to keep doing scouting for me. And he, he finds the magical player, Juan Hernan Gomez, who's an actual NBA player, but not a great NBA player. And then, you know, he, he tries to get him into camp and, you know, get him to the U.S. And he's got to take care of his family and whatever. And then, you know, he makes it and he's really great. And he pisses off Anthony Edwards. Like it's a it's, it's a basketball movie that's totally like live the dream, you know, hit all the check marks, but not super goofy. There's the Giannis Adetokounmpo movie on Disney, which is. The super cheesy version of that. I'm not going to say. How it was, was it good. as a sports movie? It's pretty good as a sports movie. You know what? You, mm-hmm. I know. I know what you mean. A sports movie should be sort of like a disaster movie, like we were talking about. Like it has to hit those check boxes as you go along, right. and it, it kind of did that. And you have that moment at the end where you're like, "He's gonna make it," you know? And then he gets <laughs> in a fight in the middle, and you're like, "Oh no, they gotta, they gotta bail him out of jail." <laughs> like, well, if you're Adam Sandler, you get to do that. You get to make your NBA fantasy movie. Well, what's funny is that like ahead of time. Like for months beforehand, I kept seeing videos of of Adam Sandler like with NBA guys. I was like, what the fuck is he doing there? And apparently what he will do is drive around and see people playing like yes. at a court outside and he'll just roll up and come and play the game with them. And he's mm-hmm. not bad. He's not great, but like he's a good shooter. He's got a couple of moves and giant shorts. <laughs> he he's going to blow something out. He's He's old. Hernan Gomez was actually pretty good as an actor. He's he's Spanish. Mm-hmm. I think he was sort of surprising in that role. He's a this is on Netflix. Guy. You don't see him very often. Yeah, it's on Netflix. A Netflix movie. Well, there you go. So those are some of the mm-hmm. films we like this year. Let's turn our attention to the media death star known as television. <laughs> and now we have a different disclaimer for this section, which is there are a lot of TV shows, way more than when we started doing this show. We pick five shows to talk about to highlight. It's hard. This is by no means. 
the only five shows we enjoyed. If you didn't hear your favorite show on here, don't get mad at us. We had to pick five each. Do you remember when like cable expanded and people were like, there's so many channels, I can't catch up with anything. That is quaint in comparison <laughs> right. to now. Right. It's not even close. No. So many shows. Too many shows. So this is, these are just five each we wanted to highlight and talk about, but we've talked about shows all throughout the year in our media split shows. There are other shows we haven't even talked about that we enjoy. I just watched a show today that I really liked. It's not on the list. It is what it is. Don't get mad at us. <laughs> First one we're going to talk about is, uh, if, you, if you listen to the show, you've been through it all, you know I'm going through sort of a basketball renaissance. I've been really paying attention to the NBA for the past couple of years. And part of the, I don't know, it's not Catalyst, but it was, a, it was a big part of it. Early in the year, winning time, the rise of the Lakers dynasty debuted on HBO. I kind of knew it was coming, but you didn't really know if it was going to be any good from Adam McKay, formerly of the uh, Adam McKay-Will Ferrell partnership. It's a fairly straightforward biopic of the, you know, the Lakers from 1979 on when Dr. Jerry Buss buys the team. And Magic Johnson uh, is a rookie that year and an, an aging Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And it was just like, you watch the first episode or two and you're like, I think this is really good. It's super <laughs> fun. And it was that appointment viewing that you kind of expect or, or you know, you want from HBO. And sure. it would be over way too soon. I would watch the show and at about the halfway point, I think, oh no, this is going to end. And I'm going to have to wait a week. And right. you know, I spent so much time watching it, just going, "How did they get this person to be Magic Johnson?" Right. It's one of those cases, like playing a character, not doing an impersonation, but like I'm like, "How do you smile in a way that makes me think exactly of Magic Johnson?" And how is this person doing it? It was just a really great show that was super fun, and and I I understand that it took some liberties with truth, but you got to tell a story. That's how every yeah, and it, but it, the germ, the thing you know of the, of the story is true, and it's it's you know how things went down from a certain point of view. I just loved it. I cannot wait for it to come. We back. all loved and, it. You know, yeah, it was great. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It was like like you three watched it. This was Lindsay's favorite show while it was on. I was real, uh, just a real moment. Uh, and we don't, you know, I know we were just saying there's too many shows, but this was like a show. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to say this wasn't my favorite show of the year. I haven't thought about what my favorite show of the year is, but this was definitely be in the conversation. Yes, this is very, 100%. very good. Very, very yeah. good. So the second season of favorite shows is very hard, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you have something that is so exciting that you loved and then then you hope they don't screw it up or whatever. And so when Only Murders in the Building came back, the surprise octogenarian hit with Steve Martin and Martin Short and and they're not in their eighties. I, I was about to ask. I think they're eighties? Septuagenarians. I realized as watching Septuagenarian. I realized as watching this that like I've been such a Martin Short and Steve Martin fan since like the early eighties that like of you know, specific actors that have traveled through these decades with me. I was so delighted and happy that they have a show like this that, that continues that kind of legacy. And admittedly, the second season you go into it and you're like, oh, I hope it's good. And the first episode is like, where are they going with this? But when this kicked into gear and just started going again, you realize that like, oh, they're taking the magic from the first season and adding to it. And I really thought Martin Short shined in this season even more so. It was so much fun to watch, and I love the fact that it was a weekly release from Hulu and like something that me and my wife were like looking forward to every week to watch the latest episode. Half hour, delightful, twists and turns, uh, irreverent, funny, everything you want from watching TV. I love the show. You can never recapture the feeling of a first season. No, right? never. When you're yeah. discovering the story yeah. and the characters for the first time, and you have that level of excitement. It's like a, you know Ted Lasso, or but yep. but this ended up being incredibly fun. 
and incredibly funny. And I'm so happy that this is like a popular show. Yep. It's so bizarre to me that it is. Because like you said, this is like for people kind of our age and older, but, or at least the actors, or I mean, not Selena Gomez, but yeah, who's great. But like, I just, I'm just so happy that Steve Martin and Martin Short have one more yep. sort of lap around town. That's great. It's a it's really so great surprising show. that they went to the uh, the shipyards in Baltimore. I just <laughs> didn't see the show going that way. That's just a, that's for Connor. About a month ago, we had the new season of The Crown, which is apparently my favorite drama on TV. It's the best soap opera on television. And what was weird and interesting about this season was it's finally hit the point where it, things that I remember happening. And mm. that's strange. That's weird. Yeah. Because, you know, the show started off the first season took place in the thirties and forties and it's so historical and it's interesting. And, and by now it's like, Oh, the music is all songs. I, I know. And I remember this happening and I remember the tampon thing happening and, Oh boy. I remember the sketch of Saturday Night Live. I want to live inside your trousers. So that was just weird. But however, it was very good. You know, this is the new cast. And speaking of The Wire, Jimmy McNulty is playing Prince Charles. And Really? I saw that he was. I didn't know who he was. I saw him on like the thing, but I, I haven't watched it yet. That's fine. Yeah, he's Prince Charles. And as I was told, if Prince Charles was that handsome, he'd have a lot less problems. But, <laughs> you know, the cast continues to be great. They keep turning it over, but they keep finding good actors. Although I didn't think that Diana actress was as strong as the previous actress and i thought she was she sort of clung on to one sort of acting tick and held on to it for the entire thing but i remember the martin Bashir interview and i remember all that stuff i didn't know the backstory i didn't know all the stuff going on i didn't know you know i didn't really know about dodi fayed and his family there's a whole episode dedicated to that i thought it was fascinating so as we careen towards the final season of the show which is the next one which i suspect will end with the william and kate sort of rebirth of the crown the, the wedding. That's what I think. I have no idea, but that was what I would do. <laughs> I still love the show. I still love the show. Oh, that was great. Real good. Thank you. Yep. I had seen the trailer for the bear. I don't know. On some, it was on FX, so I would have seen it on Hulu. And I was not clear what it was, but I thought kind of looks interesting and i didn't really know why and then i don't know one day i just happened to sort of watch it by myself and, and i immediately like i told my wife i was like you should you watch this just w- let me know what you think because i thought i think that's really good but i might be wrong you know sometimes it's just you it's don't trust yourself yeah no i know yeah yeah <laughs> you, you don't expect something to be good you want that validation i got you yeah <laughs> yeah i just was like did i understand this correctly and she was like yeah it's good and so we started watching them together and then I told you guys, and I know that I know that Ron watched it at least. I don't remember Connor. I watched it. Yeah, we talked about it on the media. Sp- okay, yeah, media split. What a unique and interesting show about this Italian beef place in Chicago and the people who work there. It just didn't feel like anything else I'd watched on TV, but felt very emotionally authentic, if not a little melodramatic about it. Yep. I mean, I think this is in the conversation the best show of the year. I was just going to say, like, like yeah. this is my best show of the year. And when we were planning the show, Josh, I wrote this in the document for you because you were the first person to talk about it. So I wanted to yeah. give you that kudos. But it was the show that me and my wife couldn't wait to watch the next episode for. 
were you know on the edge of our seat for every episode loved everybody in it such great performances such great location unknown and, actors too yeah, yes. yeah. it wasn't yeah. like people you know other than that one guy who hasn't been in much who by the way is in andor and we start we're i'm like halfway through andor and when he came on we were like oh look cousin we're like we were so excited <laughs> Who I mean, like just 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 as an example, like when that character shows up in the first issue, you're like fire that guy. <laughs> Why would you keep him around? And then by the end, he hasn't changed, but your perspective on him has. Yeah. And like I have a hard time even now trying to figure out to tell you what's good about it. I I don't know that I can put it into words about him, uh, and which I'm pr- no about the show in general, which oh. I'm gen- which I'm pretty good at. Well, terrific acting, terrific writing, a heartfelt yeah. Yeah. Uh, story. Uh, every character had an interesting arc and growth. You learned about everybody down to the janitor. Like it was, it was mm-hmm. very, very good and in an unusual setting, high paced, high pressure mm-hmm. restaurant setting. Everything about it was compelling. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it hit on all fronts, and it was a short burst. I'm, I'm gonna was it eight episodes, something yeah. like yeah. that. Eight and, half hour and, episodes. And they were yeah. short, and one of them was like ten minutes long. Like it was, it was one super short one, you know, left you wanting more. An episode that continuous shot episode. That was the short one. Oh, yeah, that was so that was good. Oh, uh, so, so Worth good. It, the whole, the whole thing was just like, I mean, like it, cause it, it got me because it's about a chef and food and restaurant and like, all, you know, kind of a world that I love to eat. And Italians. Yeah. You know, Italians and stuff like that. But then it, it, it tied into family dynamic and friendship dynamic and just like tenacity and determination and trying to like achieve something that's important to you. And, and just like it hit on so many notes and was done so poetically like uh, the show was just great. It was so good. What it reminds me of is like a great album that sounds like it's been around forever, but it's new and it's like basic roots. Kind of, but it just it just works. Yep. You know, like that's it felt like rock and roll to me in a way. I'm going to assume that you guys did what we did for about a week after watching it, which was say, yes, chef, in the kitchen when you're making dinner all the time. <laughs> no, we, what, we, what, what was the one we were saying? We were saying heard a lot. Heard. <laughs> Corner. We were saying that, too. <laughs> Corner. Oh. We would talk about it after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was very. There was a lot was a to lot. digest there. Yes. Was, yeah, which is great because it's, you know, a show about cooking and a lot to digest. <laughs> I just want to run up those beef sandwiches. So my second favorite show of the year was on Paramount Plus, and it was something that I went into expecting to, you know, 40% hate watch, 60% make fun <laughs> Again, of. Again, bad trailer. Yeah, bad trailer. But it was The uh, the Offer, the show about the making of The Godfather. And I went into it going, ah, oh, let's see what they do with this, and ended up being completely gripped and brought into that world in such a way that I didn't I didn't anticipate. Miles Teller also from Top Gun Maverick was great as uh, what's the guy's name? I Al forget. Ruddy. Al Ruddy, the you know and then the producer. You had the legendary Robert Evans portrayed by Matthew Good, who I love Matthew Good as an actor. That's another example. He's he you know he was on Watchmen, then he was on The Good Wife. I'm like, "Oh, I love this guy." Then he disappeared and I couldn't find he him. He was now. on Downton Abbey. He's been on Downton Abbey. Oh, that that explains it. Obviously subject matter that's near and dear to our heart with you know near and dear to my heart with you know kind of mafia movie, you know, Godfather, you know, Mario Puzo and Coppola and all that. Was Joe Colombo in it? What, the mobster? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. There's, a, there's an entire mob subplot to it. And like it hit all <laughs> the notes. It hit all the main plot, uh, hit all the notes for us. You know, they take a lot of liberties with like, oh, I don't know, facts and reality. But that's part of the that's well, part of a drama, dramatization. Connor told me to listen to Al Ruddy on WTF. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I listened to it. I was like, 
oh, oh, he's like a cartoon. Yeah. So nothing that came out of his mouth you could believe either. Right, yeah. yeah. The credit at the beginning of the episodes are based on Al Ruddy's recollections of Megan the Godfather. Yeah. So you take that with a grain of salt. Exactly. And then... Big one. Our buddy Hank just saw Al Pacino speak recently at a screening of Dog Day Afternoon. And somebody asked him at the Q&A about the offer if he had seen it. He hadn't seen it, but he... he, No, he had seen it. And mostly he was excited because the guy who played him was really good. And he was really good. Yeah, he was. He was really good. But uh, he said some of those things happened. Some of those things didn't happen. Or maybe they did. I don't remember. So... (laughs) It doesn't really matter. It's just a really compelling show about a... What does a movie producer do? A lot of people don't know what that answer to that question is. At least this is what they did in the 70s. Ron and I would text while we're watching it. Maybe too much mafia stuff. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps... And a little, and not as accurate as it as probably should have been. But they uh, they got a little enamored with the mafia storyline and to the uh, detriment of the movie storyline. But really fun. And Matthew Good's uh, Robert Evans is just yeah, uh, not doing an impression of Evans. He made Evans his own, yes. and like and like he got the essence of Evans, which I thought was good. I love that period of movies. I love all the the personalities that swirl around it, and and so it was just it was great to get lost in that for an hour. Every the week. casting was really strong, yeah, and yeah. Juno Tempo from from uh, Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso was, was really good. Josh, there's one specific mafia story point in it that is so fabricated and so wrong that that's the only thing I got to dig it on, which is just, which is basically they, they bring in crazy Joe Gallo. Yeah. And they posit that the Godfather and Al Ruddy were in Little Italy filming the night of Gallo's birthday at Umberto's clam house when he get when ultimately when he gets shot. No, when that didn't happen. In reality, there it's like a year and a half apart. You yeah, know, like, yeah, like, two years later. Yeah, exactly. Like, and like Joe Gallo comes to the set and tells Al, like, oh, you should come to Umberto's later. We're celebrating my birthday. And it's, I'm like, I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> or that Al Ruddy was there when Joe Colombo got shot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was an actor at that dinner, though. Yeah, it was, oh, no, it was Jerry, Arbach. Jerry Arbach. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, he wasn't was. there. He was gonna go. He, he was. Go. Yep. And then was was he also played by Sebastian Maniscalco in this? <laughs> no, uh. no, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was played by the guy who, who played Joe Pesci in Jersey Boys. Uh, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I'm saving this show. I want to watch it. I just have. You will enjoy it. It's I know. it's crazy, but it's so much fun. It'll make you want to rewatch The Godfather. And that's not, I hope they do difficult. a series of these. Just why yeah. not? Why not? Yeah. I, I saw The Godfather in the theater this year, by the way, and it was. Ron and I are going to see it in theater. It was I'm very excited. Spectacular, yeah. and it's funny because Lindsay went with me. It was on my birthday, I think, and, and she, I don't think she expected to see much. So she's like, I don't love the movie like you do. And like got out and she's like, that was fucking amazing. I was like, I know. Yeah. Like you have to see it in the context. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of see it in context. That's all. So The Good Fight, another Paramount Plus show. This marks uh, the end of the run of the good wife world, the universe that began on CBS in 2009 and now ends here in 2022. Damn. This was a spinoff of The Good Wife Show, focusing on Christine Baranski's character, and they've been stretching out to a whole bunch of characters. And as befitting a final season, this one brought a lot of actors back from The Good Wife who hadn't appeared yet, and also referenced characters, like the main characters from The Good Wife that had never been mentioned before. In a very much like a final, they sort of told us what had happened to all the characters and all that stuff. But this show... Special on TV. It's the reason why I had Paramount Plus in the first yeah. place. It wasn't any of the Star Trek shows or anything else. It was just, the reason why I subscribed to Paramount Plus is because of the good fight. I was always excited for it. Terrific cast. Audrey McDonald, Delroy Lindo, Gary Cole. Uh, who's the girl who plays Marissa? The girl who plays Marissa. Sarah Steele. Ah, oh, so good. This season, Andre Brower, my favorite TV actor of all time, yeah. showed up, and he was terrific. <laughs> He's been 
goofy on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for so many years. It's, I hadn't seen him do dramatic work in a long time, and he was so great. John Slattery joined the show this year. Underused, I thought. Underused, but still. One of the hallmarks of the good wife universe is terrific actors, even in just cameos, and they that continued with this show. Yep. It delved into surrealism a bit. But it had done that in the past. And it was also a little like terrifying. It deals a lot with modern day politics. Like this year was sort of the fallout of you know, authoritarianism and, and white supremacy. And because this is a show based in a primarily black law firm in Chicago, you know, terrifying in a way. But man, what a good show. How smartly written. Everyone on the show is really terrific. And honestly, I've been watching. I didn't watch The Good Wife when it started on TV. I started, I caught up on DVDs. And then started watching it. Um, so I've been watching it since I moved to LA because it was one of the things I started watching when I first moved and was working at home and I needed something to watch. I, I started watching The Good Wife. So I, ever since I moved to Los Angeles, I've been watching The Good Wife with The Good Fight. So now it's over yeah. and it's really weird. It's a moment in time, that's for sure. Yeah. So. It's the end of an era. I loved it. It's so great. I'll, I will miss this whole universe. I didn't love, love, love this season. I had some criticisms of it, but it still didn't change the fact that it, every Thursday night we were there watching it. We got more Alan Cumming, which is always a great thing. And so, yeah, yeah loved it. Goodbye, good fight. I, we loved you when. Exactly. I was looking forward to the Gilded Age. Another Christine Baranski vehicle. Yes. Yeah. And Audrey McDonald. I don't know if she's driving it. I don't know. <laughs> she, I, she, she was the, she was the, yeah, she was like the lead, you know, kind of. Uh, she's in the poster. Yeah, the name. Okay. And I think, I guess I had expected something different than Downton Abbey. And it took me a minute to adjust to the fact that this was totally just Downton Abbey. <laughs> in New York. <laughs> in New York at this time. And I remember I finished the first episode and I didn't go back for a little while. And then one day I was like, eh, I'll watch some more. And after that, I was hooked. I couldn't. It was exact, exactly in the same way that Downton Abbey hooks you. Like, it's not good in the way that you expect something to be good. It's good in a different way. It's not It's not in any way as good as Downton Abbey in any facet of writing, per- casting, acting. But it's compelling in the same way. It is Downton compelling. Abbey. And I Gilded Age New York. Interesting. Is, Real interesting. It's yeah. one of my favorite settings. I just... Am fascinated by how that you know we know that city, and and so much happened there, and it's fascinating how you know things worked then, and what Uptown was considered. It's Twenty Fifth Street, like right. <laughs> like it, it's you know a different. And the, the cities they spend no time downtown, none, We're not, <laughs> not in that part of the city. I really like I can't think of his name, but sort of the the lead actor, rich man who's trying to break in Carrie Coon's husband, and he was in um uh, uh, uh he was in the, Plot Against America, yeah. Uh, oh he's yeah he's great that. yeah 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 you know he's fantastic Car- carrie coon is she's very frustrating in the show <laughs> it's just it's like she wants to climb the ladder and you know they, they're, like they're talking about race and stuff in in ways that i'm almost sure they did not do at the time oh, for sure but you know it was really compelling you wanted more you know it, morgan specter was george russell the, the yeah the railroad rubber baron yeah you know that originally this was developed as a spinoff of Downton Abbey that it was supposed to take place in the same world and they were going to have like one of the characters show up in the beginning just to, but they decided not to do that. You could still do it. It wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. 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 But that like the tone, the music cues. Oh yeah. It's exactly the same. Upstairs, downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it. We really enjoyed it every Sunday. You know, HBO is still, it doesn't have like the big, well, I guess winning time, but it doesn't have, I guess House of the Dragon is the big hit, but it still produces the best shows on Mm-hmm. On average, on aggregate. Yeah, as I've said, if I had to give up on my streaming services, I would keep HBO. Yeah, yeah, and you do. We're <laughs> telling you now, but the big surprise on the show. That's fine. So speaking of HBO, one of my favorite docuseries, and I think I talked about it last year, maybe, or two years ago on the Almeida show, but it was the docuseries called The Vow, 
which was about all of the people who got caught up in the Nexium cult. Mm-hmm. And for those who may may or may not know, this was the life coaching, unlock your inner potential, turn secret sorority sex cult that drew in Allison Mack of Smallville fame and Nikki Klein from Battlestar Galactica. She's a Cylon. The first season really kind of focused on the former members of it who brought it down, basically, who like went public and told everyone what was going on and led ultimately to the arrest of the main people running it. The second season tracked the trial of Keith Ranieri, the main guy, and went even deeper, you know, with trial, no footage, but recounting of the stuff that was discussed in the trial and just really went deep in kind of truly what the sexual trauma was that was related to it and what this guy did to people and how he did it. They also, a bunch of the people who was arrested all, you know, pleaded guilty except for him. And so his partner, this woman, Nancy Salzman, who was the, the business president of the company, worked with the documentary while she's under house arrest. And so while you're tracking the trial, you're hearing her point of view from it and explaining what was going on and giving context. And it is just fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. You know, Connor, I'm surprised you haven't watched this because we were tracking this when it was happening in the news. Yeah. But like going deep into it, 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 it just it, it is one of those things where you just got to wonder what people are thinking. And, and, it, and it really is kind of sad when you think of how people can be manipulated and a glimpse into the true evil some people might have. But it's also the kind of thing where people think that they are so convinced what they're doing is right. Right. Sure. And it's just it's just it's a fascinating study and kind of like an aspect of humanity. Yeah, it, it's totally compelling. So it's Taylor Sheridan's TV universe, and we're just living in it. He is the creator of Yellowstone and now the Yellowstone franchise of TV shows, Yellowstone being the number one show on television. Can I tell you, I went to an, uh, a media summit event at Google with, yeah. you know, like one of those things, and the guy from Paramount Plus, one of the head people from Paramount Plus spoke in a panel, and he was just sitting pretty about the Yellowstone world. He was, you know, like bragging about the most watched show and all this sort of stuff, and it was, it was very interesting to see a lot of like swagger uh, in that regard. But I guess it's well-deserved, right? Which is ironic because Yellowstone's not even on Paramount Plus because they sold the rights before Paramount Plus was a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's spinoff-wise, and I, I, Yellowstone's back. for the, the most recent season just started up again. Or I think we're four episodes into it. The previous season wasn't the best one, but this one is interesting. The thing about Yellowstone is, is it's, it's a basically a primetime soap opera uh, with a little bit of Sopranos-y stuff in the middle of it. But you have to sort of take that with what it is. It's crazy things happen. You go with it. People make dumb mistakes. You go with it. But it's really fun and interesting and all that stuff. I talked about it before. But I really wanted to sort of focus on 1883, which was the spinoff that was on Paramount+. Plus. It was a Paramount Plus exclusive. Josh, you should watch this. When you go to Paramount Plus to watch the offer, you can also watch from 1883. It was just a 10-episode miniseries taking place on the Oregon Trail as this family, the Duttons, which is the... <laughs> Sam Elliott. Sam <laughs> And Sam Elliott, you know, they're trying to get to Oregon, but they end up not because a lot of people didn't make it from the Oregon Trail. But a really terrific Western that was down and dirty and unflinching about the realities of the world and people in that time. It's not romantic at all. And ends pretty definitively, right? Oh, it's it, it's yeah. just a miniseries. It ends. Yeah. It ends. Yeah. The next one's 1923, which stars Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. Which is just crazy. Jesus. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Like Harrison Ford was impressive. And then you said Helen Mirren. I was like, really? Yeah. Well, this one featured cameo by Tom Hanks, featured a cameo by a terrific cameo by uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Like, people want to play in this guy's sandpit. Yeah. And really, really good Western. We were really, really impressed by it. Cool. 
Tim McGraw is the lead, and he's really good at it. And his wife, Faith Hill, plays his wife, and she's really good at it. He was in something that he was really good in. I'm trying to remember what it was, and I was surprised. You will like the Sam Elliott plays the Civil War veteran who's the who's you know hired to lead the wagon train full of German immigrants across to Oregon, and the Duttons mm-hmm. sort of tag along. And most people don't make it <laughs> to the end. <laughs> most of them don't. Yeah. Because that's what happened back then. And so uh, really, really strong Western. I'm really looking forward to next 23. I watched, just watched the trailer with Harrison Ford. It's so bizarre. In the 20s in, the, in Montana, things were still kind of old Westy back then, even though you had flappers into the Jazz Age happening on the coast. But, you know, this guy struck gold and he's riding it and he's producing great shows with it. We were so excited every week when 1883 was out because it was much more interesting than we expected just, it to be. I have zero interest in any no, of it. No, you wouldn't like it. Any of it. Like yeah, it. just like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Josh would like 1883, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Like, it could be good. I recognize that I've uh, read all the stuff. I just... Not everything's for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Like, like Kevin Costner in Montana. I'm like, I'm out. You know, like, it's just... Like... Right. I'd say if I had to choose... If I was, I'd put For All Mankind in my top three, and I, I'd, I'd move around the first slot. Hmm. Hmm. The, Christ, I don't even remember if this was the third. This would have been the third season of For All Mankind uh, on Apple TV+. And it's a show that, for some reason, I feel like people didn't really talk about very much. So the first season is in the 70s, second season in the 80s, and third season's in the 90s. And it's the same characters. And... You know, it's by Ronald D. Moore, who did Battlestar Galactica. It's a better show than Battlestar Galactica. It basically, it's about an alternate history space race. And the kickoff is that Neil Armstrong isn't the first to reach the moon. The Russians are. And everything that changes after that in the world. Pretty much the world we know, but there's little differences along the way that make it really interesting. You know, this season, you know, this is another one that like we were excitedly waiting every week for the new episode. And when it would end and there would be that cliffhanger thing, you would yell. No, I mean, it just one of the smartest, most fun and dramatic shows with, again, a really good cast full of character actors, but a little over dramatic at times, but in a way that works really well. I love the show. I, I, I like more people should be watching it or maybe it's just made for me. And that's why I feel that way. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Much like The Good Fight, one of my favorite shows came to an end this uh, this year with Better Things. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show in the past or not. But I think you have. I, th- I, pr- I probably have, but uh, yeah, yeah. On FX, so I watched it on Hulu lately, but it's uh, basically the vehicle of Pamela Adlon. You may not know the name, but once you see her, you're going to be like, oh, her, right? No, she's awesome. She's, she's amazing, great. yeah. She really you know, was a child actor. I remember her from the 80s all the way up. She was on, on Louis C.K.'s show, and then, um, and then this show. Not Wheat, was it? No, not weeds. What am I thinking of? Different show. Different show. Ignore me. Better Things has gone on for several seasons, and it's basically- Californication. It just- That's the one. Basically focused on- Showtime. Her as a single mother raising her three kids in LA, working in L, you know Hollywood, you know, and and but like not in glamorous Hollywood, and like doing voiceover and like trying to get into directing and like stuff like that. Workaday Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Where most people live. Yeah. But just unflinchingly honest, unflinchingly relatable, amusing. It's been great watching her three daughters grow up and you know and and become women to a certain degree, like part of the coming of age story of the, of the, of the aspect of it. And in terms of like family sitcoms, this is like a great example of what like a modern sitcom could look like and it's not really you know it's not a sitcom it's just it's a glimpse into their life it's again like nothing happens here other than you just watch what is happening in their life and how they deal with it what was it on hulu on hulu okay it was on fx it was an fx show okay half hour episodes loose plot throughout 
all the seasons. You know what I mean? Like each episode's an individual story, but there'll be little touches that tie to the larger plot line, you know, through line of what's going on with her, with her and her daughters. I just love the honesty of it. And Pamela Adlon, I could watch her. She's another person I could watch, you know, infinitely. If you like listen to inner, I know I've heard her on Fresh Air a time or two, and she's incredibly forthcoming. Yes, you know, yeah. I, you know what I mean, and just you know, really interesting. And that's why I mean, that's why she fits so well on Louis' show. Yeah, she's so, great. She's, she's so she's good, very so. genuine and open. It's the kind of thing where, like, if you never watched it, just you know, watch a couple. There are half hour episodes. Watch a couple of them. Get a couple under your belt. Get a feel for it. I think you'll find out that it, it's it's really really good. So also ending on Hulu FX this year was Atlanta, which was once the hottest, buzziest show on TV yeah. and sort of fell off the radar culturally, partially because they only did four seasons in seven years. And that's partially because basically everybody on the show became famous yeah. after they started. Brian Tyree Henry and Lakeith Stanfield and Zazie Beetz. Zazie Beetz and Brian Tyree Henry were both in Bullet Train. So they all became stars in their own right, and they all went off and did other things. So you'd go one or two years without a season. But this was the final season. The previous season controversial wait, one wait wait so the twin brother that's the paperboy guy yes holy shit is yeah. he british or american he's american that's amazing yeah he's a great actor the previous season was controversial that it took the crew and this is a show about a successful atlanta rapper and his cousin who's his manager's cousin played by donald glover and their friends and the third season took him to um europe and then interspersed every other episode with a completely unrelated short film about race in America. It was controversial. This season brought it back to its roots, back to Atlanta, focused on the crew. Except for one episode that was a random fake documentary about the first black CEO of Disney. It was a fake history. And it was very funny, but it was just like, what this show did was, after the first two seasons, really sort of swerved into surrealism a bit. It wasn't that the weird, like, the weird Michael Jackson character or whatever it was? That yeah, yeah. There was one episode this year similar where... Uh, Zazie Beetz character, she's an aspiring actress and she has a daughter and they went to go work on a show that was basically um, a, a version of Tyler Perry and played by Donald Glover. And it's it's very creepy along the lines of that episode that you're talking about where it's like this weird world that he's created, this this insular production world and he's got cameras everywhere and he's sort of an Oz-esque character who lives uh, away from everyone but monitors everything. Very smart show, top-notch actors. Had a lot to say about race in America. It may have fallen off the cultural radar in terms of mass appeal, but it never sort of lost its edge. And I really enjoyed every episode that I watched. Even the ones that were off, totally off from the main story were at least interesting in some way. It was a nice little return to people who were extremely creative. They would come back after a couple of years of being away, and they would come back to these characters and do something interesting with them. Um, really, really strong, smart show that I enjoyed. I'd say my big surprise of the year was the Sandman program from Netflix. And I was going to say like Watchmen in that it was just surprising that it was good, but in a completely different way is that they did the comic book. Faithful. Straight up faithful and good depiction of the comic book series. Something would happen on the show, and I I remember a couple times I grabbed the book off the shelf, and I was like, that's it. Like they did the shot that was the same as the panel. The dialogue came straight from the book in a lot of cases and then you know finally the the casting i mean i spent the entire time looking at morpheus and just going how did they find it's the same way that i did with with magic johnson i was like how did they find this person who right. looks like the cartoon wasn't neil game the showrunner yeah i don't know if he was a showrunner but obviously he was involved he was a showrunner of good omens i think he was a showrunner of the sandman I can't remember. well i mean it was surprisingly good and faithful and, I and terrific out. and uh, you know uh, again 
did they all they all come out at once? Because it's Netflix, they must have. Yes, it did. Yeah, we tried to space them out so we didn't get through them too much. You know, the the Corinthian is one of the creepiest characters I've ever read. I don't know that the eyes worked so well. No, but they kept them under wraps most of the time. Right, so. that was the only thing where I was like, oh, that didn't work quite as well as everything, like everything else. Like not bad, no, but I was like, didn't but, really have the fear factor that the comics page gave. Uh, it. That character though, the, the actor though, was really good. Really good. Created an incredibly compelling character. You know, there was like a, a menace and a childlike innocence at the same time. The serial killer convention, mm-hmm. again, that's right from the book. The Hob Gadling episode is one of my favorite issues of comic books ever. And that episode, like, absolutely delivered on all that. That was the one for, through time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the best episode, yeah. I mean, it's the best issue out of that first sort of book. It's it's one of the best single comic book stories. I just loved it. And I'm, like, I'm not the world's hugest Sandman fan, and I wasn't really... I don't look forward to these things, because more often than not, they're not going to deliver in some way. But, but man, it, it it did the job. Got a late, a late, late, late season two renewal. Yeah. It's probably all we're going to get, I'm assuming. I mean, it looks very expensive. Yes. yes. It was a great show, though. Really great, great. show. Yeah. Another great show that I was late to the party with was uh, Welcome to Wrexham, which is also on Hulu and FX. And I got to say, FX-Hulu combination. Oh, yeah. Every other thing I watched was on FX slash Hulu. Hulu yeah. is, I think, quietly yeah. one of the best, if not the second best streaming service. Yep. Agreed. In terms of quality. FX is great original programming. It always has. So one of the reasons why I was late to this was because I saw it described as like, if you love Ted Lasso, you'll love this docuseries where Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney buy a soccer team. And I was like, oh, God, I, I don't you know need that in my life. But then uh, my brother-in-law started watching it and was like, no, you should check it out. It was really good. So we started watching it. And say what you will about Ryan Reynolds. I vacillate on him. Charming and funny. Charming and funny, but also irritating and annoying. And, you know, like depending on how you do it. It was lovely when I interviewed him a couple of years back for Deadpool. So I'll give him that credit. I don't co-sign the annoying part. Yeah, I don't either. Oh, I do. Uh, There's something. I watch him and I think, can he be this cool of a guy and be that tall and good looking? Yeah. Like it's too many. And then also like a extremely accomplished business. Per- I don't understand how his yeah, life Yeah, I will say the, the business side of his is very interesting. And and they touch on that a bit in this. I, have, have you watched any of this, yeah. Josh? Or? I watched it all. I was we watching talked about it on that. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sick. Are you in cold medicine? No, it wore off. That's the problem. Oh, that's the problem. Yeah. And so we started watching it. And I will say it, it uh, and obviously Rob McElhenney, who we know from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Mythic Quest, who I, who I, I think is fantastic all around. And you get introduced to this, you know, crazy idea that McElhenney had, which is to buy a struggling football team, soccer team in in Wales and see if they can turn it around. And the amount of care and money, compassion and money. All right. Let me talk about about the people and the community around this football team. And very quickly, what I assumed was like, oh, just a bunch of guys from Hollywood with money, you know, you know, buying a trifle and having fun with it, realized that, no, they took the responsibility of what the local football team means to a community. And it became as much as it was about trying to get this team to win and get promoted to the next league. It was about giving hope back to this town post pandemic and post depression and all this sort of stuff. And really, like their hearts were in the right places. And, And every episode, it was great to see how that investment played out in the community and how it was really, you know, really this wonderful thing that was happening. And that, you know, because they're from Hollywood, they have the ability to document it all and introduce you to these players and these townspeople. And every episode was gripping and compelling and 
heartbreaking and I can relate to it as a Mets fan, right? Because you want your local team to win and sometimes it doesn't go your way. And so they really captured what that means and what, you know, the community of loyalty to a team and to a sport can mean. The whole series was delightful. We could, you know, normally when we watch something, we don't binge stuff, we space it out, but you can tell how much we like something if like multiple nights in a row we're watching like, oh, let's watch another Wrexham. Let's watch another Wrexham because we want to see what happens. And and they just did such a great job with this. I, I don't like reality shows, but this was it's a documentary. It was documentary. Yeah, it was more more docu-series than reality, although it is a reality show. But they, they knew what they were doing in terms of manipulating you as a viewer. Oh, yes. man, especially that last episode. Every documentary. That last episode. Oh, brutal. But also in terms of like using all of that as a way to fund the thing. And when I was talking about money, I wasn't being facetious. I mean, they made a genuine investment in the whole thing. And I was like, there's no way they're making a profit out of this. Oh, yeah, none. Yeah. yeah. You know, so- At least short term. Well, short term. I don't know about that. Well, right. But but I, I'm like, we're going to need another million dollars for the field. Yeah. And another two million for this player. And I just thought, I mean, either way, like it's not coming back for a while. Right. And so like they had to sort of go all in. It was really interesting. I was put off in the beginning- from starting it like I, I watched it pretty much right away because i think i'm a fan of, of rob but i just thought i hope it's not to look how cool right that's what i was very, concerned about like i didn't want it, it to was, be that you know and, I, and with right, reynolds i very, thought you, you you run the risk of that very quickly dispelled yeah i think and, and that's what i liked about it there, there was there were certain things where i was like i wish they would tell me some more about this they're glossing over some of the sort of like nuts and bolts of running it right but i really enjoyed it they did a really good job of making you get to know the people in the town. So I remember at one point they were talking about opening a pub in the stadium, and I was like, "Oh, that's not good for Wayne." Yeah, yeah. Like I knew, I knew the fucking guy's name. We were in the pub outside, yeah. like, and I got worried about his livelihood. And it's not outside. It's like, isn't it in the? It's attached it's to the attached. building. Yeah. yeah. Or like you know, Paul Mullen. Like I know oh, all about Mullen that. Mullen is so. Like, oh, Mullen's so good. But yeah. I thought they did a really good job of making it more about the people yep. of the town that's on the team and who worked there than they did about the actors yeah. which was always fun to see but it was more about that and, and they used rob and ryan appropriately sparingly. like you you had yeah. you, you know sometimes sparingly sometimes there'd be an entire episode all about them but that was after three or four episodes in a row about the town or the players and the team it was a well-crafted series yeah so the final show on our list and we had 15 shows and i just counted while you're talking run six of them were hulu shows out of the 15 that's a good run it's a good run yeah yeah I waffled on the final pick because, you know, you only got five and that last one's always hard. You want to, there's so many shows you want to talk about, but I ended up picking Reservation Dogs from, again, from Hulu FX. Well, actually, it's only on Hulu, but it's an FX show. Because, well, first of all, it's a terrific show, but I, I talked about it in a media explode early on in the run of the most recent season. And I said I wasn't sure about it because the first season, this was season two, the first season was very tight about this group of kids on a reservation in Oklahoma who were desperate to get off and go to California and start a life. And then the second season was very segmented. It was almost every episode was about them individually. And at first I wasn't sure and didn't know if I liked it as much, but about halfway through, you really got to see what they were doing and it became a very emotional and it had a lot to do with more about their heritage and generational trauma and things like that. And while still being very funny and silly at times and, by the end of it, it was just another terrific season full of all these you know, actors you don't know in the, in the lead roles, but also dropping in people like Wes Studi or uh, Zahn McLaren other native actors who you've seen in other things. Really strong, emotional, very funny. Taika Waititi is one of the creators of the show. It has his DNA in it, even though he's not the day-to-day guy. So that's Sterling Harjo. I can't recommend the show enough. It's a really great show and of looking at a part of America and life that we don't often get to see. And he's very funny. Anyway. Um, I, I really like the Reservation Dogs. It's, I, it's one of my favorite shows, and 
TV. So there you go. There's t- television. Ooh. Too much television. I will take a quick second here to let you know about how you can support the show. If you are enjoying what we're doing here, if you enjoy the weekly podcast that Connor and I do and all the other is basically two podcasts a week at this point. And the best way to support that is go to patreon.com slash ifanboy where you can directly support the show. All those other shows that I was talking about, they were unlocked for everybody because of that community. There is, you know, Discord and a Facebook fan group that are just great little communities, really supportive, fun places to be, unlike most of the internet. We are going to switch up the stretch goals, so keep listening. In January, we'll have uh, an announcement on what that looks like. You can also go and get our merch. We've been having merch for so long, we didn't even call it merch. For a long time, there are 12 designs that you can get put on T-shirts or sweatshirts or towels or curtains or skateboards. Check that stuff out. Our our, our most recent design is, is, gosh, the good old superheroes with just an awesome design on there. We really like everything up there. We make sure uh, that it's something we would wear ourselves or, or enjoy ourselves. So it's, it's, um, it's all good stuff we're proud of. You can go to ifamo.com slash support, where if you don't want to do with any of that, there is a PayPal link if you wanted to donate directly. And then finally, ifamo.com slash Amazon will give you a link to buy stuff from Amazon. There's still time to shop. There is. There shop is. The season. And you'll find links to the books from Booksplode, uh, to the music in a given show. But that's a, a really easy and innocuous way to help out the show. It doesn't cost you anything. And then finally, where appropriate on the site, uh, we've also partnered with bookshop.org, which is a way to order books from the internet, but from local bookstores. Uh, and we stick those links in wherever we can to help support those. They are the lifeblood of storytelling, those local bookstores. And we're, we're really happy to be able to do that as well. Yeah. Thank you, anyone throughout the year who has supported us through any of these methods. We talk about it on our regular show all the time, but there literally wouldn't be any of these iFanboy shows without you. You help mm. uh, pay the bills. You help, you know, we're, we're taking three hours plus tonight away from our families on a Friday night to do this. And it helps sort of reward that a little bit. You know, it's a modern economy of storytelling and content creation. And I hate that word. I mean, it's just it, how things Ron are... had said this a long time ago. It's the value for value. Yep. I don't remember. I know you, you didn't start it, but that's what it is. You know, the, like, you know, the audience isn't necessarily large enough that we can live on ads or something like that. Not that we can live on this, but, you know, the, that's how it gets done. And, and, you know, people, listeners, fans have been awesome for a really long time about it and we really appreciate it so thank you mm-hmm. speaking of books from bookshop let's talk about books i'm always reading a book i've always got a book going and i've got a human sized stack of books that i haven't read yet that are just <laughs> haunting me like a ghost i've done two things in the last i've done one thing in the last two years and a new thing this year so i've been trying to mix up classics with new books oh look at you last year i talked about a hemingway book on the show and uh, this year, I'm going to talk about Great Gatsby from F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I hadn't read since junior high school. But I've also been alternating books. So like, I'll do a fiction, nonfiction, fiction, nonfiction, fiction, nonfiction, until I get to the summer and go on vacation. Then I bring a bunch of murder mysteries. But I've been trying to keep it lively. But the first book I'm going to talk about is The, is the Great Gatsby. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great American novel, considered by some the best American novel of all time. It's really short. It's like 100 pages. Had you never read it before? I read it in junior high school, okay, but yeah. not, not since. Yeah. I've never read it. I've seen the movies and I've seen it, but it's it's a really short book. You can read it. You can knock it. I mean, I, there's posters they sell with the entire novel on it, like, or, you know, towels. Like, it's a very short book. And it's going to sound dumb when I said this about the Hemingway book. It's really good. It's really, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really good. This is not new news, but I remember there's a few times reading this book and I was like, I put it down and I was like, well, really, fuck, that was a really yep. great sentence or that was a really great. Sequence I love that. Or scene. Fitzgerald at his height had a way with words, man. He was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
No, but I mean, but the, the, you, you, if you know Fitzgerald's story, like there was a peak and yeah. then a, you know, like, and it was a short flame out, but like this was the, you know, the example of potential, right? Like, oh, so good. And it's the, probably the most misunderstood book yep. of the era. Anyone who throws a Great Gatsby party it totally missed the point. Yep. Shocking. Everyone should read it. Everyone in America should read The Great Gatsby. Fine. You've seen the movie. You've seen the Leo movie. You've seen the Redford movie. Great. Read the book. It really does encapsulate a lot of the problems in America in a one short little book. And it's terrific. It's really, really terrific. I cannot recommend it higher. And it's fast. You'll read it very quickly. Sort of in that same vein, but not really. Uh, I finally got around to reading Please Kill Me, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk by Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain. This book's been around since 96, and I've sort of always known about it. And basically, Legs McNeil was one of the co-founders of of the magazine Punk. And it is their assertion that they are the first ones to use that word because it was they were doing the thing in downtown Manhattan when the the New York punk scene was coming out and they started using that word. And again, you know, like then everybody else started using it. That's the story. But they did do this magazine. And so there are years and years and years of interviews and oral histories that had been taken. And so this is the story of American punk basically starts with Iggy and the Stooges and the MC5. By the way, the MC5 shit is insane. Yep. I had no idea yep. how, like, John Sinclair, they're going to jail, they're, do- they're dealing drugs, Wayne Kramer goes to jail, Iggy is strung out for a good decade and change, <laughs> and then it goes into, into New York City as they sort of move there, and the, the story of CBGBs, and, and the Ramones, and the, and the Dolls, and then Johnny Thunders, and Blondie, like, it, it goes through that whole scene. You know, in a relatively you know short amount of time, I think it's pretty much over by late seventies. In the book, I mean, you know, as it sort of new wave starts up, it's super compelling because it's the people telling it as it happened. You know, we've talked about it a lot. I'm a punk rock fan or whatever. This is the area of punk where I have the hardest time relating to the folks because it is, it is. Oh, the, the Velvet Underground. That's the that's the link in between the two. Like these are some fucked up, strung out individuals. You know. <laughs> You know, Didi Ramon, you know, he's he's a hustler on the streets. He's seriously addicted to heroin for a long time. And there's all these explanations of how they thought about heroin in the beginning. Actually, you know, the book ends with sort of Sid Vicious and, and Nancy as that ends. That sort of works as the symbolic end of, of that punk era. You know, but like it's so like I'm like I there's so much punk rock that I got into because I sort of related to what they were talking about. This is one of those ones where I'm like I these stories are fascinating. You love the music, but not the lifestyle. It's very hard to relate to in any way, but it is a fascinating read. I mean, they literally like this. The book goes to England during their punk thing and then comes back to New York. And boy, there's a lot of stories and a lot of connections that I don't think I knew about. Uh, great read. Breeze through it. The Devil May Dance, a novel, is CNN anchor Jake Tapper's second historical fiction novel. The first one is called The Hellfire Club. Nothing to do with comics, but it had to do with sex cults in Washington, D.C. in the 50s. This one takes place in the early 60s. Jake Tapper has a facility for these sort of breezy, fun historical fiction novels and that involves a murder. And there's always this books full of real people. Like the first one had Eisenhower and young John Kennedy senator and people who were there for, in that time. He lives and works in D.C. and has a interest in political history. This one takes place primarily in Los Angeles and Palm Springs as 
the main character who was a senator from New York gets involved with the Rat Pack and Frank Sinatra and all of them and another mystery story that so the Rat Pack becomes main characters in the book and a lot of actors from the time are in the book and it was sort of like catnip for me but mostly uh, after reading it I was so sort of in the head of the of the world that I went out to dinner for celebrating our buddy Hank's birthday with his wife and our buddy Mike Romo and his wife and my wife and I really tried hard to bring the term broad back on that at that dinner. Oh, Jesus. Well. <laughs> like, did you float it out like, like, with like casually? It's yeah, it just here. didn't 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 take. And I had to explain why I did it. It, it was it was fine. I think you end. should keep pushing. Really fun, breezy, and you know, it's like one of those beach reads kind of books where it's just it's a fun little thing. And Jake Tapper is very good at this sort of thing, and he likes history, and I like history and. I like reading books with real people in historical settings and fake stories, and it was fun. I don't know if we talked about it on last year's one, but... We did not. All right, cool. Yeah, that's what I thought. So the final book in the Expanse series, Leviathan Falls, came out, the ninth book in the Expanse series by James S.A. Corey. It came out right after we did the show, and I, I mean, I didn't read it to well after. Yeah, it came. Yeah, I remember. I, I, I finished reading it in February. I checked my, you know, my Kindle, uh, whatever, you know, progress. And uh, so, so I finished it earlier in the calendar year, even though it did come out last year. But I felt given how much we love this series, oh, yeah. I, it needed to be brought up here. For sure. And it really brought these you know, nine books over how many years have we been reading them, right? Like it ended, it, at least for me, it came to a satisfying end. I thought it was great. Endings are hard. So many beloved stories don't stick the landing. But this, I thought it did. Yep. And it ended the way I th- figured it kind of would in terms of characters. And you could tell over the course of the series who James S.A. Corey really liked to write. And I was not surprised that those were the characters that sort of ended the book. But, yeah, I thought it was strong. I thought it was really strong, and I really liked it. Yeah. So uh, pour one out for The Expanse. But it was great. It was a good way to end. God, how many pages? Total pages. Nine, 700-page books. So good. Just so, yeah, yeah. And really created a world. And, like, those characters you got to spend so much time with. And really come to care about and think about you know like i think about amos a lot yeah yeah <laughs> yep and it's a book series we all, all three of us loved it came to a different times i mean what was when was morrison con Ron? oh geez uh 2012 it was 10 year 10 year anniversary this year yeah 2012 yeah so that yeah. was it because i remember that was where i discovered the first book because that was jonathan hickman on the panel said yep. that that's the book i read recently that i really loved and i went hmm and i went home and bought it and told you Either got it for you for Christmas or told you about it, and that's where it started. Yep. So Ten years of reading this book. Yeah. Oh, where's the time going? I know. <laughs> We're all going to die. Yep. Well, part of the time uh, <laughs> is devoted to prescription painkillers. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Ugh. Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. Last year, we talked about the show Dope Sick. I think that was on. We talked about it last year. I know that we, we Probably, also yeah. And we talked about his other book, didn't we, last year? Right, yeah, no, Say say Nothing, um, or no, Tell No One. Say Nothing. Say Nothing. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, at the end of this one and that book, Patrick Radden Keefe is like, he's a must-read. Yeah. Just, he's got a th- another book that just came out. Rogues, I've got it in my to-read shelf. Yep, I'm going to, I'm I'm heading into that one soon. It's a collection of his articles from like New Yorker magazine, but still, he's a ter- Whatever. writer, yeah. So, if you know anything about the OxyContin I mean, it's one of the most affecting things to our culture that that we have. This is a real deep dive on the Sackler family, where they come from. For a family that that try to keep everything completely out of the light of day, you know, Keith dug up 
so much, you know, with, with journalistic zeal and all the ethics that go along with that. It, it's, you know, and it's magnificently written and, and you know that, it, you know, it's, it's accurate as he can make it. The story of the family is fascinating. And it goes through several generations, you know, starting early in the 1900s. I want to say the 30s, I think. It was when the, the first brothers became adults, you know, all the way up to now when it turns into like a succession like situation. I mean, it's, it's so giant. It's so much stuff. Uh, evil. And, and it, it's affected evil. everybody's life. Yeah. So and, evil. And, he, and he, yeah. he doesn't mince words about that kind of thing, you know, but also like the repetition of themes. Arthur Sackler was sort of the lead brother. He really had nothing to do with Oxycontin specifically, but like he was responsible for pretty much the success and abuse of Valium. Yep. Evil. There were so many things while reading that where I just go, can you believe this? Just a wonderful, wonderful bit of reporting and nonfiction writing. It's one of those things I tend to read more nonfiction because no matter what it is, you're going to get something out of it. Like, you know, like even if it's not written great, you're going to learn something or whatever. And this was every bit as good as any fiction or any of the stories fascinating and real. You should take the time. I mean, you said earlier, it's one of the most important things. It is. In the United States. Of this generation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, you can put it up against the COVID outbreak and, all, you know, in terms of changing the course of the country, mm-hmm. you know, of the epidemic of not just overdose and deaths, but despair and broken communities throughout the, I mean, like it's just, it's ongoing, it's never ending. And the medical crisis and the healthcare crisis as a result, it's one of the most important things that's happened and, and not in a good way in the last And what the book does generation. is really spell out as best as possible how this came to be. Like it really helps you understand how this kind of thing can happen, and it's because of a very small group of people. Evil, evil people. Evil. Mm-hmm. On a much lighter note, this was a book that I was alerted to on our iFanboy patron Discord. We have a book channel. They don't even know I've read this, but I monitor everything. I see all the conversations. They were talking about this book. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I picked it up, and it's called 16 Ways to Defend a Walled City by K.J. Parker. And it's a fantasy novel. Sort of kind of in the vein similar to The Martian in that it's very procedural hmm. in that in this fantasy world, there's this guy. It's all told first person in a, in a sort of memoir recollection style, which made clear by the end of why it's happening that way. But this guy who is basically like a mid-level functionary in this, in this army, he's a, like a lieutenant or whatever of the engineers. His job is him and his crew go out and build bridges for this empire and they fix you know infrastructure. They're, they're not combat troops. They are... You know, they're the they're the Army Corps of Engineers. So while he's out doing that stuff, doing his job, the army of this empire is sort of wiped out by this force. And they have to make it back to, to their walled city where the capital is, only to find that there's no troops left and there's no government left. And the emperor is uh, not functioning. He's not a functioning human being. Wasn't this Mark Russell's Red Sonia book? Well, kind of. So what happens is... This guy is the, basically ends up being the most highly ranked person in the city, and so he takes control of the defense of it as this army is looming. And this is where the Martian part kicks in, where it's like, so like problem, solution, problem, solution. Like, oh, I got to find food, and I got to find water. I find food and water. I got to organize the defense of the city. I got to organize the internal, because people live here. I got to organize the internal def- police force. We don't have one. Like, it's like all these different problems keep popping up. Oh, the army's got trebuchets. We got to take care of that. But it's Really interesting and fun. It took about 50 pages, maybe, or so, to really get my feet fully under me in terms of the world, because that's sort of happens in fantasy where you got to figure out there's nothing to hold on to. It's like, who, who are the blue guys? Who are the 
you know, the pale faces and what does it all mean? But I, by the end of it, I was really into it. I was really into the sort of the, the mechanics of it, of all the things he had to do to keep this thing running. You know, it was a, it was a managerial nightmare. And it was really kind of a book more about that than anything else. And uh, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really funny and interesting and a nice little fantasy book. Nice little fantasy story, but mostly about building and repairing. Talking about building and destroying and repairing and building, I need to thank Connor for giving me, uh, for Christmas last year, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers by James Andrew Miller, which became a Batan death march of a never-ending book. <laughs> I'm not done. I, I mean, this book is, what, over a thousand pages, right? And it, like, and it yeah. basically it outlines uh, oral history style, the history of HBO from the 70s till today. And inadvertently, this book became, at least my experience of reading it, became that much more enhanced because probably about a third of the way through it, at the same time in the real world, the Warner's Discovery merger happened, which affects HBO Max. And so while I'm I'm reading about what's happening today, I'm reading in this book of what happened yesterday, and you get a sense of like, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So it was really, really kind of enhanced to have that context and, and do the, you know, comparison between what happened back then. But if, if you're into media, if you're into the media entertainment business, this is a must read. HBO is, you know, without reproach in terms of like standing in terms of the, you know, uh, from a business model perspective, from, you know, what it did for creatively for TV with the Sopranos and everything into the 2000s, just all the the backroom, boardroom politics of it all. Totally fascinating. I, I, you know, took freaking forever, but I enjoyed every minute like reading the it. The characters, so, yeah. the people like the small group of people who were responsible yeah. for the things that happened and shaped so much of what you experience and watch and listen to now. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, You've got to think yeah. they're going to do a follow, you know, like when they did the James Andrew Miller did the Saturday yeah. Night Live book and they came back with a second volume with like a hundred more pages. And so I, I got to assume they're going to do an, another volume of this because it ends with the AT&T. Right. Yeah. They've, they've got to add. They're going to yeah, do. You have to. Right. Another update with with a discovery merger. One of others is like a hot potato, yep. right? It keeps getting I wonder passed if they around. Get people to talk yet, though. It's funny because you know we're, there's a lot of attention at the Walt Disney Company, you know, which you know, but I have a lot of you know also interest in for obvious reasons. But it's just fascinating to see. And I was talking to my wife about it about the juxtaposition between HBO and Warner's, which has always been a product of merger and acquisition over the last thirty yeah. years, compared with Disney, which has been a a stoic, you know, like, you know, you know, you can count on one hand the number of CEOs over the last hundred years, right? Like, and, and, and yes, made a lot of acquisitions in the 2000s, but really having this kind of, you know, solid presence that Warner Brothers didn't have, you know, and so really kind of fascinating to compare the two. A quick lark of a book, I think it was an audio book. These are mixes of audio books and regular books, was The Republic of Pirates being the true and surprising story of the Caribbean pirates and the man who brought them down by Colin Woodard. It's basically as comprehensive a history of pirates as you think of them pirates. Hmm. Yo ho ho, you know, Caribbean in the 1700s, a relatively short amount of time, and digging up as much as they could about who the people were and how things worked. And it was really fascinating uh, to learn about the stuff that, like, is sort of omnipresent in culture, but I don't really know anything about. You know, for for right. such a long time, and, and you know, 
it, the idea of you know the, the pirate ships, the pirate groups formed because the people were so mistreated by the navy. You know, I'd heard the term press gang, but what I didn't understand was that, and this actually shows up in um, Neil Stevenson's Broke Cycle, is that like if you're caught out at a certain time, they will find you and put you on a ship and send you out. Just any man who was sitting around, right. and and pirates were sort of this way of fighting against the system, saying we're going to take a ship, we're going to desert, and everything on a pirate ship was democratic. You could choose the leader. Everything was split evenly. If they didn't like the captain, everybody could vote the captain out. And just this really short and impactful bit of history about where it came from and kind of how it went away. It was really, it was just just like a thing that you know you're like, wait, I don't know anything about this, and you shine a light on it, you know, and it's just this fascinating little bit. Really, really great, quick read, well written. We wouldn't do well in the high seas, no, at all. Well, I mean, we might not have had a choice. All the scurvy, Ugh, so much scurvy. <laughs> the pirate ship was a better place to be because of that too. So uh, I read a novel this summer called Five Decembers by James Kestrel. It won the Edgar Award for Best Mystery, and it's a crime story that takes place it opens up in hawaii in the 1940s there's a murder involves a japanese couple there's a german suspect the main cop chases the suspect to china and then world war ii breaks out and it's called five decembers and he as this mystery unfolds through the course of the war and he has to survive the war while also trying to solve this mystery and i was really inventive really good I have never read a story like that before. It was a really, really interesting idea. I really enjoyed it. It has this great old pulpy painted cover. It's kind of a throwback to the, so the, the sort of crime books of the 1950s and 60s. Really, really well, well written and enjoyable and exciting. I don't want to, I'm, not, I'm giving hardly any details because I don't want to spoil anything about the book in case someone hears this wants to read it. But if you like crime, if you like World War II, it's a perfect melding of all the things that I like. And it was really, really good. One of the best books I read this year. I picked up from the library, The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. And it was another one of those things, you know, we all know the story of the Wright Brothers. They went to Kitty Hawk, they built a plane, they flew it. But I don't really know anything about them. I mean, if you want to come up with like a quintessential sort of American story that actually, actually follows the idea of what we thought Americanism should be, you know, like learning something working really hard at it, being successful, fighting through. These guys were were amazing. I, I'd mentioned it to Connor, and I said, you wouldn't believe this about them. And he goes, do I want to know? And I was like, no, no, they're good people. <laughs> Don't ruin the right brothers. I mean, no, like, and, and you, you can't. Like, they said, we're going to do this thing. And they figured out how to do it, and they did their research, and no one believed them for years. <laughs> like, like they had flown before anybody else and no one bought it because there wasn't media in the same way there is now. But then like they finally they went back to Dayton, Ohio, and they're flying around in a field and doing circles. And the story does not move out of the area because anybody out of the area doesn't buy it. Pixar didn't happen, Wilbur. And there were pictures like it's just the strangest thing. And they became it was much later before they became like very, very famous and eventually got their due. And in the world renowned, but they were such interest, almost not interesting. They were such straightforward guys. They were good guys. They never got married. They only did this. Really worth the time. David McCall is a, a wonderful history writer. We lost him in this last year. You know, he had all his faculties and powers at work when he put this one together. It was great. I was really glad to learn about it. 
I believe on last year's show, I talked about in and of itself, the documentary, not documentary, but the, I was going to say concert movie, but the magic performance from Hulu uh, by Derek Delguadio. This year I read A Moral Man, A True Story and Other Lies by Derek Delguadio. And this is his memoir. And, you know, starts off as a kid and he has a rough childhood and he sort of, he sort of retreats into magic like a lot of people who are into magic do. Eventually, sort of disenchanted with it, doesn't have any more fun doing it as a young man, so stops doing it, but then has to return to make money by helping these guys cheat at card games in the, around the LA area. And it's a really interesting story about, you know, his life and magic, and you're learning a lot about cheating at cards. And then it ends, and you're like, wait, was that all lies? Because something happens, and he, he reverses things, and you're just like, wait a minute, what just happened here? And you go, Delguadio! <laughs> There's a little bit of hint of that in the documentary itself of, am I telling you the truth or am I lying to you? And you don't right. really know for sure in the book. I suspect most of it's true, but also something you thought was true turns out to be a lie. And that makes you question everything, which normally I hate, but for some reason it works with this guy. Well, then, because then all of a sudden your mind goes, wait a minute, what else about what I know isn't true? And how would I even know if I didn't? Exactly. <laughs> Delguario. Delguario! It's the end of Connor's movie about him. On our most recent Media Explode episode, I talked about seeing Quentin Tarantino live on his book tour related to his book, Cinema Speculation. And I'm, I haven't finished the book, but I'm, by the time this year ends, I'll finish it because it's going so fast. But the book itself, Cinema Speculation, if you are a movie lover, and specifically if you like movies of the 70s or you like Tarantino, this is a must read. What I love about this book is that if you're familiar with Quentin Tarantino and you know how he talks, that is how he writes. And you can hear it in his voice in a way that is so entertaining and like pluses that up for me so i've just been thoroughly loving this book every minute of it it's a you know 60 mile an hour blast joyride through film and what's great about it is each chapter is a different film yep. which is sort of the framing device but it isn't always necessarily about the film and i also like that you don't have to have seen the film to understand exactly, what he's talking yeah. about or get it like i, I probably said about half the movies he talks about on in the book obviously the ones i've seen i get more out of the chapter but the ones i haven't still is really interesting and also what's good about the book i think is that i don't necessarily agree with everything he says you know this art we're all talking about art yeah. and everyone has different opinions and some movies he hates i love some movies that he loves i hate but he's always interesting in his opinions about things which is not surprising considering he's a great filmmaker but even if i don't agree with what he's saying about a certain movie i find what he's saying to be interesting and valuable anyway sure. like you said i flew through the book yeah. i finished it probably like a little over a week it was really good yeah, so much fun and that leaves me to close out with a book that arrived one day that I did not know about from my friend Connor, who would be sitting opposite from me if this was a real-world place. <laughs> Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks by Chris Herring. And this is a, again, all my books have been nonfiction this year. I really want to know about the world. It's a story about the 1990s Knicks. John Starks, Patrick Ewing, Pat Riley coaching, Anthony Mason, you know, and I was, I watched basketball back then. You know, the 90s was, were the time. Everybody, did we talk about the last dance last year? We must have. Yes. Either way, you know, this is that same kind of in-depth look about, you know, over at the other side was, was the Bulls rivals, the Knicks. Knicks never got past the Bulls. They couldn't do it. That team had such a personality. You know, they were Charles a losing team. Like, good Lord, that man. <laughs> you know, like, you couldn't imagine people playing basketball like that today. It no, the, the style is completely different. It's, it's anathema to how they play basketball now. It would never fly. But it was also the last time I watched basketball on a day-to-day basis was the 90s Knicks. And then yeah. after that, once that ended, I basically moved on to just watching during the playoffs. And 
But there was nothing like that. That 90s experience of overall, there was like five or six really great teams, of which one was the Knicks. And that was the real global rise of basketball as a global sport, you know, which was started in the winning time show, which we started this thing out in. It was great. If you like, it's one of those, you know, I'd watch these people. You had an idea of their personalities. And a lot of times, by the way, their personality in the court was pretty much what they were actually like. Poor Anthony Mason, you know, good at heart, but just a disaster. You know, poor John Starks. It really is a story of like, they don't win. No, they got so close. This is the last time the Knicks were good. <laughs> I can still see, I can still see Patrick Ewing's finger roll bounce off the rim against the Rockets mm-hmm. and not go in. And with it, all of our hopes and dreams of a championship went with it. Yeah. That was the closest they ever got. And I can still see it hitting. And it was not a good day at school the next day in high school. I see. I still watch it from a different perspective. And I can see Charles Smith's five rebounds and misses in a row at the end of that game not going in. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it's a great sports book. It's worth your time if that's I really want to read you it. Enjoy. Yeah. Yep. Our buddy Hank read it, right? He liked it too. Yes, he did. Yep. Yeah. All right. So there we go. And it's a very different, updated version of Pat Riley from Winning Time. So now let's talk about music. Normally, this is the Ron Richards Memorial segment, but since he's here, hey, we'll just call it the music segment. All right. Last year, I talked about being so excited about a single song from a band called Plosives that featured members of uh, Drive Like Jehu, Rock from the Crypt, and Pinback. Following up from last year, early in the year, they came out with their record, a self-titled record called Plosives, and I got to see them at St. Vitus uh, in Brooklyn, and they just blew the doors off the joint. It was fantastic. Such a great band, that post-hardcore kind of thing, so much energy, great melody to it. It was honestly, it was like a great way to start the year from a music standpoint. Very, very happy about Plosives. I wish they tore again because I want to see him again. But John Reese on guitar is a god. It was so great to see him just shred on it. And uh, yeah, so I'd strongly recommend checking out Plosives. P-L-O-S-I-V-S. Is this your favorite new band? Well, it's hard to say. uh, I mean... You talk about them a lot. Yeah, I mean, they are probably my favorite new band band just because they're like, like, they're not new music. Like, they're established and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I tried to check out more new bands this year than previous years. And there have been ones that i've liked but none that really broke through as much as them you right. know in in terms of new music there was a uh, band called fleshwater that actually saw open for koyo that was really really impressive like a weird mix of like alternative music and hardcore which was really kind of cool and then also there uh there was a band called soul blind that came with a record called feel it all around that was like a mix of like quicksand and well, i forget what the comparison was me and my friend were talking about it. we were laughing about it a really really strong debut record but i didn't get to see him live right so for me new bands is that combination of like i want to hear the record and i want to see them live and like feel the whole kind sure. of experience with it but yeah but i definitely tried this year for the new music aspect of it well if you ask me who the coolest 80 year old person in the world is it's probably bob dylan me and the rest of los angeles apparently went to see bob dylan play the hollywood pantages theater in la did a three-night stint and uh i'd not seen bob dylan live before he came and played our college but i think i was in la at the time he did? yeah he did he played ithaca while we were oh. there and bob dylan is no fucking nonsense he comes out he plays his songs there's little to no banter or patter he just goes from song to song to song and then he leaves there's no encore honestly that's the way it should be by the way like i am pro yeah. no encore just yes. to, on the record but me yeah. too it's rote yeah. at this point it's the whole charade. I'm like, we all know yeah. what's going to happen. Why are you? Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to somebody a couple nights ago, another show I'm going to talk about that's at an outdoor bowl, and you can see the exits and you can see the bus from the bowl. 
And the woman was saying that she had seen him play the same tour through this event venue. And you watched him leave and get in the bus and drive away. <laughs> like he was gone within 30 seconds of the show being right. over. But it was all from his new album. So it wasn't like he wasn't playing the hits or anything. He was like George Harrison. He just wanted to get home. I'm going to be on the yeah. bus for two weeks. And I don't want to be on the boat. <laughs> He's gone. The songs were good, though. And I bought the album because he's one of the great American songwriters. And his band was lively. It was a big band. He played from behind a standing piano most of the time. So you just saw like his shoulders and head. And they were way back on the stage. It was very bizarre. It was fun. And he was great. He still got it. And he still has it. Whatever he's got, he's got it bottled. He's 80. He still rocks on the stage. I understand that there's sort of a lot of different versions of him. Like each sure. tour and album is like a completely different thing and the way that he performs it is different in that way. Yeah. It was good though. Fascinating. Yeah. One of my favorite all-time bands is a band called The Wedding Present. Britpop band David Gedge uh, is the singer and the main kind of uh, songwriter kind of creative force behind it. And, you know, they've been around since the 80s and and already established as like one of those legendary kind of bands. What was really interesting is that I'm fascinated by David Gedge's inability to just kind of rest Right. So like during the pandemic, they put out two records called Lockdown and Strip Back, which was all just kind of like acoustic stuff and rough recordings, like still made music during the pandemic. And here we are kind of coming out of the pandemic and it's kind of like, all right, what, you know, when they come up with a new album, what are they going to do? And instead, what they chose to do was do a project called 24 Songs, where they did a brand new seven inch single every month of 2022. So January, February, all the way up to December, every month, like clockwork, they put out a new single with two songs. You could subscribe to it to get the physical media, to get the vinyl sent to you every month. Or like me, I just waited for the digital release and listened to it monthly. But every month, knowing that you're getting two new songs from this great band, and they were like bangers. Like they were good songs. They're, they're good songs. Like, How did they get the manufacturing for doing vinyl once a month i have no idea that's amazing in itself yeah exactly you got 24 songs which is basically like a double album over the span of a year and it was just a fun journey and like i i noted on my calendar I'm like oh there's a new wedding present single and like it was like an event and i text my friend scott be like what do you think of it and like blah blah, blah. really great they're collecting all the seven inches into a box set so if you miss the mail order monthly mail order you could get this box set and get them all on vinyl i don't know if i'm going to do that just because it's a lot of money and it's British and shipping and all that sort of stuff. But the songs are awesome. Huh. And just, they continue to be one of my favorite bands. How long has that band been around? Oh, geez. A long time. Yeah. They started in 1985. Wow. Yeah. That's getting to 40 years. How I found out about them was when I was in high school, I was booking shows at, at a skate park and I booked the band lifetime and anybody who's into punk and hardcore knows lifetime. And the week of the show, they called me to cancel Lifetime was the headliner of the show I booked and they canceled because the singer of Lifetime Ari was going to the to New York City to see the wedding present because it was such an event that the wedding <laughs> present were coming to the states right and so at that point I was like 16 17 I'm like I should check out this band the wedding present like if it's enough for them to cancel their show so he can go see them they're probably worth it and it turns out they were yeah <laughs> that's a great story Speaking of culmination of a thing I've 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 been thinking about a long time, I got to see Sunny Day Real Estate finally at the House of Blues. It's a band that I have wanted to see for all of my adult life. They toured in two thousand nine, but I I missed it. I was I was not plugged in enough at the time to pay attention to that. And so I went by myself because my wife was recovering from surgery and couldn't go. Ron, you'd seen them a couple of days before me in New York. Yep. And you you wrote you're going to love this, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> 
And man, did I. I. I mean, like, you weren't wrong. And it's one of those things, like, it's hard to explain why. I've been to lots of shows. Lots of people performed really well. But it's a band, you know, I love. This is one of my, uh, I, you hate to do a top whatever, but they're at least top 10, right. if not if not more so. And the thing was, I think I said this when we talked about Avail forever ago, like, they were just so goddamn happy to be there. And I didn't expect that because they're, you know, historically extremely enigmatic. They broke up. They didn't, you know, like they did stuff like their second album. They just delivered it with no notes, no title. You know, like it was very brash, I guess. But at this point, they're older. They were in such a good mood. And at one point, like the crowd is is singing the part of um, I'm trying to think of the name of the song. Their songs don't have names that you remember. It's like 47. <laughs> and the crowd is singing the one part and going back. And, and Dan, the guitar player, is just like, you guys were awesome. It was even in key. And like I was weeping at one point. I just like, I can't believe I'm getting to see. I can't tell you how many times I have air drummed to diary in my car. Like it is the sound of what my favorite kind of rock and roll is. Jason Narducci, who's who's a bass player in like nine bands I love, played backup guitar and did backup vocals, and he he was awesome. Jeremy Ennick, you know, he looks like a middle-aged man, but he sounds like Jeremy Ennick still. <laughs> William Goldsmith is maybe my favorite drummer. And he just sounded like the sound of his drums was exactly what I've heard, you know, on my CD forever. And, and he, he just broke his hand. They had to cancel a bunch of shows. I'm really glad that didn't happen to me. Totally worth it. So glad. Now I can never see them again. It won't live up to it. It was a good show. I, it it kind of cracked me up how much freaking out there was just in the general scene and everything about it. Because like they broke up, but they've reunited several times since they broke up. And like so much so that I was like, oh, I guess I'll go see Sunny Day again. But I recognize the fact that you uh, never got to see them before and how special that is and how important that is. So I'm glad that you got to enjoy that. Yeah. And I just also think like they were at a point where and Nate Mandel wasn't there, uh, who's with the Foo Fighters. Right. I don't know. Like at a certain point, they get old and you're like, the bullshit seems to have passed for the most part. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. In a way that it hadn't earlier. Yep. So uh, with the C. Jackson Brown at the Santa Barbara Bowl, this is the venue I was talking about earlier. It's an awesome little bowl theater in Santa Barbara. seats about 4,500 people. And Jackson Brown's a legend of the 70s California Canyon sound. And somehow, I'm still not even quite sure how, ended up with front row tickets. And I've never been in the front row for a show like that before where, first of all, it's outside. So you've already got a different vibe. It already feels like you're just sort of hanging out. And then you sort of forget there's 4,500 people behind you and you're just sort of there with the band. At one point I remember turning around about halfway through and, and, and doing like the, the like flinch. Cause Oh shit, there's a lot of people behind me. I just sort of had forgotten about it. Uh, he was terrific. He was really great. He's a local, he lives in Santa Barbara. He has for years. So it's sort of his local show and he had a great time. He was terrific. He played all the hits and really good band. He, he brought out some, you know, some special friends and that he, he knew from the, the area, like some gospel singers and things. And it was, it's a really, really great show. We had seats, so you were away from the stage. And then at one point at the end, there was no signal. Everyone just sort of got to move up to the to the stage. So we were up, up on the stage for the last bit of it. Really fun, really great night. And I can't I can't imagine how we got those tickets and how we'd ever do that again. But uh, I'm glad I got to have that experience once. Cool. There was a post-hardcore band in the early 90s based out of West Virginia that achieved the stuff of legend amongst all of us in the 90s. They were a band called Lincoln. They were only around from... They released their first 7-inch in 1992, and they broke up in 93. During that time, they did release a split 7-inch with another band called Hoover, which created the legendary Lincoln-Hoover split, which is like a 
staple of any 90s hardcore kids record collection like i've got a copy of it like everyone's got a copy of it and you just spoke because hoover was a discord band and they toured and was able to see them but lincoln was just like who's lincoln and like the song on that on that split seven inch was like amazing and nobody got to see lincoln because they're only it was in west virginia and it was this small pocket of time but they were just great and it was one of those things where everyone talked about them in hushed tones because nobody got to see them live nobody knew more than just a couple of songs and so when it was announced that they got all the original analog tapes of their discography and like every post-hardcore band of the 90s they handed them to Jay Robbins of Jawbox fame and also like studio recording fame to remaster them. And they finally released their entire discography this year on a record called Repair and Reward. And it's not a lot. It's like 10 songs or 11 songs, but they are so good. It is, you know, akin to Fugazi, Slint, you know, like that sort of like late 80s, early 90s, post-hardcore kind of sound. And it is universally, yeah, I'm sorry, there are eight songs on the record. It's not even 10 songs. There are eight songs on the record. But it is so universally loved by a lot of the people coming out of the scene. It was great that finally we can get like an actual good mixed version of it as opposed to like copies or recordings of the old seven inches, seven inches and things like that. And it was great to see like Brooklyn Vegan was doing a, is doing a lot of like you know, here are the best records from the members of this band or whatever. And I'm just seeing this record pop up in so many people's lists because they were so influential to so many of us of that generation. So Lincoln Repair and Reward, the re-release of or the release of their entire discography was like a must-have vinyl get. And I I ordered the deluxe like colored vinyl with a t-shirt, like the whole kind of thing, because I want to support them too, because you know, it's great to see like, you know, freaking 30 years now they're revisiting their music and getting it out to the world, which is awesome. That was really special. And then what was also special was that a couple of years ago, Josh, right? It was, it's been a, several years, I believe, on this project. Yep. Discord Records, legendary record label of, you know, Minor Threat and Fugazi and all the, all the other stuff in the DC area, Imakai run. A couple of years ago, they announced uh, every hundred releases when they release, you know, a, a milestone because they number each release. And when they release, reach a milestone number, they do a big deal about it. And so the latest milestone, which I think was 200, was it two? I think it's Discord 200. They decided to collect the first six seven inches that they Discord ever released and re-release them in this box set called the first six Discord records. And so I, I pre-ordered it as soon as they announced it. She's like two, three years ago. And then it finally shipped. We finally got it in our hands this year. And so you got the first, you know, the first minor threat seven inch SOA, uh, teen idols, basically the stuff that started what became a movement collected in one box set. It's just like a must have for anybody who's a fan of all this stuff. Beautiful set at that as well. My record collection cool. is, is better for having these two releases in it. Do you put seven inches on? Yeah, sure. I tend to not because you so quickly got to turn around. And, well, yeah. So but, I just yeah. don't get them. If I want to listen to the song, sure, yeah. You grew up with them. Yeah. <laughs> sure, I get it. I get it. It's a commitment, yep. which is good. It means you're going to pay attention to the music. I'm a big Radiohead fan. This is not a thing that's new. Tom York and Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead started a new band called The Smile. They released an album this year. The album is pretty good. I feel I have a feeling like this is what you're going to get as a Radiohead fan going forward. I don't, I don't feel like Radiohead's going to get back and put on any significant new music going forward. It's pretty stripped down. It's guitar, bass, and drums. Occasionally a guy with a saxophone who had the strangest opening act I've ever seen in my life. I went and saw them. You know, to me, Tom York is one of the great musical geniuses of my life. And to watch him perform is like a, it's a thing that I don't want to take lightly. I've actually, I've seen him, I've seen Radiohead like four or five times and I saw him solo, but this was a whole different thing. It was a, 
heck of a show in a place that was much smaller than I would ever expect to see. Like, I, you know, guys from Radiohead. I just really loved it. And the album's actually like surprisingly good. Tom York's albums kind of always sound like Tom York albums. And there's a song or two that sort of sticks with you. And the rest of it is very trancey beat stuff. But yeah, this was uh, this was really cool. And, and, you know, Johnny Greenwood doesn't say words most of the time. In fact, I thought he might have been mute. He's not. And he speaks. Just he always sounds like that Johnny Greenwood that you, you want to hear. It was a really good time. It's one of those sort of coming back to shows things where I was like, oh, we get to do this again. And it, it's because it's, it's still, you know, kind of um, unique still. I feel like after the pandemic. Why aren't they just Radiohead? I mean, they're grownups and they all move to different places in the world. And what they used to do, you know, was they'd get together and they'd work on stuff together for, you know, they were in the studio for the better part of a year doing OK Computer and Kid A and stuff like that. And, you know, now they're all 50 something. And, you know, one of them lives in England and one of them lives in Brazil and they have families. And it's just a thing that isn't going to work the same way that it used to. I think they haven't done an album. The last release was in 2016. That was a more of an odds and ends kind of thing. It's like they finished up bits of stuff that was around. It was very electronic. The album before that was 2011 King of Limbs, which was, again, leftover stuff. It wasn't great. It hasn't been since the 2007 album In Rainbows that they really like made an album together. That's a long mm-hmm. time. By the way, that album In Rainbows is probably my favorite album of all time. Like, just for the record. Cool. The record. <laughs> my album of the year has to go to Suede. The album is autofiction. Probably over the years, I've talked about Suede before. Longtime listeners probably heard me talk about them. My entry point into Britpop back in 1993 with their first record, literally top five all-time bands ever. They stopped touring in the U.S. in the late 90s after their second or third tour because they like all their gear got stolen and they had a miserable time. So they said, screw it. And then they broke up and then they got back together and since they've gotten back together they've only been playing in europe and they've been consistently putting out records they did play coachella back in 2011 but that's been the only time they've come back to the u.s since 1997 and so they come out with this new record called autofiction and i'll give you credit like suede runs the gamut between really energetic you know kind of glam brit pop and mopey sensual sexual like oh androgynous kind of you know like you know but like drawn out kind of thing and their last record was a little more on the mopey darker long drawn out not as you know whatever autofiction comes out and like the singer brett anderson like i looked it up he's 55 this year like josh we're talking about you know the reality of radiohead stuff like that there is such a punk vitality energy to this record it like it, it kind of Josh, you remember like a couple of years ago when that uh, when Bob Mould's Silver Age came out, and I'm just like, damn, this rocks, yeah. right? It, it's that same yeah. kind of thing where like they put out the first single and everybody was like, holy crap, that's suede! Like it was like unbelievable. Yeah. So they put out the record. Record is solid. It's fantastic. You know, really, really, really great record. Well balanced. Reminds me a lot of their early stuff. Then as I'm like, great, we get another suede record. Awesome. But then they announce that they're going to tour North America. And they're going to go on a co-headlining tour with the Manic Street Preachers. And like, what's a co-headlining tour? Which is basically because both the Manix and Suede could both be headliners. So what they did was they alternated nights. So like one night, Suede played first and Manix played second. And the next night, Manix played first, Suede played second. And 
I was just in disbelief that they were coming to the States because I thought that's one of the things I thought would never, ever happen again. Right. So obviously, of course, they announced they're going to play Brooklyn. So I, I get my tickets and we and go to the show in a just a position. I saw Suede in 93 on their first tour and then in 95 on their second tour. I didn't see him in 97 on that last tour. But both those times I was much younger. Right. And so, you know, you know, who cares? Now I'm much older. And when it was announced they're playing Brooklyn on this co-headlining tour and it was announced that Suede would be the first band, I was like, oh, thank God. Because as, as, <laughs> as, as much as I liked the Mannix, it was, it was like, it, it was, you know, it, I'm just going to go home. Like, we're going to go home. I've never heard you mention them. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it's one of those things where like, yeah, no, they're, they're, I, I'm aware of them and I, I respect them, but I'm, I wouldn't categorize myself as a big fan. So I was like, oh, great, cool. We can go home at 930. This is going to be awesome. And so we go to the show and they proceeded to blow the doors off the King's Theater. Honestly, like that energy that was that's recorded on auto fiction was brought to the stage and Brett is up there. And now I've seen this band before. Like I saw them in the 90s. And then after they played uh, Coachella and I missed it, I saw the videos on YouTube and I was like, God damn it. I should have gone. And so I bought tickets to see them in London and did a 36 hour trip where I flew from San Francisco to London, saw the band, slept for four hours and then flew right back to the States. Oh, I remember yeah. that. And they were great back in 2011 when I saw them saw them do that, but it was still that kind of androgynous, sexual, oh, you know, kind of like you know, wavy kind of feel. It wasn't as much of this like rocking kind of uh, approach that they took. But Brett would voluntarily ran down the stairs from the stage into the crowd and sang entire songs with everyone in the front rows, like it and like jumping up and down with that like that punk pogo kind of feeling and, and mentality. And it was just like amazing. So after the show, me and my fr- my friend Shannon went with us, and she I, I went to see them with her in '95, and she was just like, "Oh my god, that was like insane!" Like everybody was like blown away. So I'm looking online, I'm reading all the reviews of their live shows, and everybody is saying the same thing, and basically saying that like they feel bad for the Manic Street Preachers when Suede plays first because there's no way they can match that energy. And then like one of my buddies, uh, this guy Kyle, who's the singer of a band Grade that I love from Canada he posts on Instagram and he's like, Oh my God, I went to go see suede and I didn't expect what I got. And like, we had this whole discussion on Instagram about like the type of band they were and how they're, you know, kind of basically this is a facet of them, but not as much as what we've used to, especially 30 years after their first record. So it's just great to see how much energy and vitality can come from such an amazing band. And just like with their ninth record to still be as relevant, as important as great live. It just was the, the musical highlight of the year for sure. I found myself at a venue in East LA on a Wednesday night in a venue with probably 200 people, all of whom vastly younger than I was. (laughs) This is not a situation I've been in in many, 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 many years. But I went to see Bleached, who are a popular LA band. I mean, they're popular in general, but they're an LA band. They're popular within LA. And they happen to be uh, made up of two sisters of a friend of ours. We went with them to see them at Lodge Room. And I had never seen them live. I heard their songs. I've got their albums, but I have, I've never seen them play live before. And it it just made me feel like I was much younger than I actually was because it's, it had been a long time since I'd seen like Feels a, good. Feels good, right? Yeah. Really fun, energetic opening band of these three young women who were influenced by Bleached. They were excited to playing for them. And then they came out and they rocked. They were awesome. The crowd loved it. They were excited. They're three women and one man playing hard-charging rock and roll music all original songs. They were great. They were really great. I paid the price the next day, but it was great. <laughs> nice. I, I liked did, you have, did you have earplugs? No, I didn't have a problem with my ears and my back was killing me the next day. 
All the standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we had a whole group of us. We go, we had a whole bunch of those. A group of six or seven of us. We, we had drinks beforehand. We went out to the show. We hung out in the green room afterwards. It was really funny because we, you know, we know these girls because they're sisters of a friend. Like I hung out with them in Palm Springs a couple of months ago. But one of our friends brought their friend who was a legitimate fan of the band. It was funny to be with somebody who was excited to meet them, and we were just like, "Oh, that's just them." But it was cool. I had a good time. Probably late last year, I said, "Lindsay, would you want to go see Weird Al?" And she went, hmm, yeah, sure. So we got tickets, and this was, you know, coming out of that Omicron surge that was at the end of last year, and, like, it was, like, weird for us to be going to a show. But we went to Weird Al in this relatively smallish theater, and I didn't know what to expect. I had heard about this big show, you know, where, like, they, they change costumes every other song, and it's a big, and it, it wasn't that. They, Al sat down, they all sat down, and they only played original songs. Like huh. they only played like the original, no parodies at all. And it was great. His crowd is all ages. Like he doesn't make new fans, but his kids have, his fans produce new fans. Like it was like, you're sure. like, oh, that's three generations of nerds there. They did this encore thing where like, they were like, okay. And they walked off, but they didn't really walk off. They just sat behind where they were and you could see them and like check their phone moved around and then it was like go back and it was like just hold on you know but you you know you just it was again that play at you know the stupid ritual of the encore that goes on and on and and i will say the encore was amazing they did this crazy acapella jam thing where there was all these harmonies and rhythms that were coming in other or just doing with their voice like you kind of forget like oh this they're actually incredible musicians because they've been playing together forever. I'm so glad. And like, as I was watching the movie the other night, I was like, I'm so glad I went to that. Lindsay was like, me too. She's not like the hugest Weird Al fan. Did he put out an album of original songs? Every album has some. Right. It just always has been. And he'll do, he'll do like songs in the style of other people. So like there's a Devo song. There's actually a couple Devo songs. Or no, well, Dare to be Stupid was a Devo song. And then there was a, there was a Talking Heads like type song. Yeah, there's a lot of them like throughout the years. If you listen to the whole album, it's not going to be the singles. They didn't make like videos of them, but right. there's plenty. Cool. Have you seen him before? No, never. Surprised by that. Did Me you interview too. him? I worked on a show forever ago, a TV show back when I did yeah. that. It was about the knack and my Sharona. But he was one of the talking heads in it. Yeah, but which which is because of me. I was like, you know, he did my Bologna. We should get him on. And they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. So I booked out. Know, <laughs> oh, like, I used to use that show. That's how I met Stan Lee the first time. Like, I was like, you know, Stan Lee. Oh, okay, we'll bring him on. So like that, I met Weird Al, and and uh, you know, it, you hear that he's a nice guy. He was a very nice guy to me. You know, just as we were stuck waiting for the camera guy to set something up or whatever. And I, I always remember that. But yeah. So now we're on to the segment that comes and goes depending on the year, depending on our free time. The games segment. It used to be called video games, and now it's just games, although this year it's all video games. All right. So the, the thing that's going on right now, which is, I'm just going to tell you, it's a problem. I'm literally playing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not lying at all. Yeah. I already did that. Yeah. <laughs> I did that as a bit on the show once already. Is <laughs> Marvel Snap. And I remember there's a thing from Marvel that came out, and Ron goes, this game came out. It's pretty good. <laughs> Ron likes where he works and sometimes he says things are good and I said okay fine and I downloaded it or whatever and then one day I sort of just pulled it out you know you take a little while to figure out what it is and then all of a sudden you're like I seem to be doing this a lot <laughs> like Lindsay looked at me yesterday she's like are you still playing that game I was like uh, uh, yes because <laughs> then you start to figure it out and then you're like okay wait I gotta do a deck 
it sounds like I'm not the only one having this problem. But it's a problem. So, so full disclosure, it, it is a game released, uh, you know, with Marvel where I do work. So I do work for the company. But, uh, you know, I'll own up to it as good as possible. But quickly explain it. It's by, it's a game by the people who made Hearthstone. So if you know Hearthstone, you know, that's like a turn-based card game where it's kind of like Magic the Gathering, yeah. but in, you know, kind of app form. And the yeah. way it works is that you've got all these cards that are all the characters from Marvel that we know and love, heroes and villains. And each card has individual talents that they can do things and there are three locations on the on the on the field and they're all locations from the marvel universe right so like it's it's got that aspect to it and all the locations do something and you get this infinite combination of things that can happen when you play cards on different locations and the idea is to basically and each card has points the idea is to win two out of the three locations to win the match and why it's so addicting is that the games go fast. Yeah. It's also like, it's very, I don't play a lot of card games or whatever, but like it's very clever. Yeah. Like it's very elegant and simple and complicated at the same time. And that thing about those locations and the place where they are has a narrative connection to what they do. Yep. And so I like, one of them was like, I know the first one I noticed was Sokovia lose one card. And I was like, Oh, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like Quicksilver or, you know, and a, each card has some power that is, you know, somehow related to it. And so I imagine people are playing this who don't know Marvel yep. really deeply. And I, so I don't know what it's like for them, but for somebody who's, it's not like there's a lot of cards that come up and go, I don't know who that character is. I know them. And, and the best is also that the guy, the people who are doing it did their homework and they, and they do. And I'll give you behind the scenes stuff, yeah. which is fine because it's like, this isn't like secret stuff. The company that makes the game works with our video game division at Marvel to make sure that it's on brand and does everything, but they've done their homework. Right. And like, they've yeah. figured out how to make these not only like accessible to people who don't really know Marvel as well as we do, but to make it really fun for people like us who, who do. So Connor, the, you know, what, uh, I want to get your reaction to this. There are some cards that when they get destroyed, something happens to them. Right. So for example, right. you can play Bucky Barnes and it's that card is valued at one point. And if that card gets destroyed, it regenerates as winter soldier with six points. Hmm. It's neat, right? There is an Uncle Ben card. Oh, I haven't got that. And yet. when it gets destroyed, it turns into Spider-Man. Right? Oh, it's <laughs> just like that's, and like as a as a comic nerd, you're like, oh, that's genius. That's awesome. Right? That's really smart. Yeah. Do you have the Agatha Harkness card? I got that the other yep. day, and I was like, holy shit! If you get Agatha Harkness, she plays the rest of the game. For yeah, you. you don't do anything. Or you get. No or if one of the locations is Ego, the Living Planet, he takes over and plays the game for both players. <laughs> and 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 this is important by the way there is a, a freemium thing you can pay for it you can do whatever but you don't have to pay anything and there are no ads yes yep. you, you, there's no they, like most of free games on your phone like you've got to pay or watch ads or do whatever you just play there's and there's no like you can only play this much before your hearts recharge whatever it is you can hang out all day. You don't need to, to constantly feed money into it. Now, they've also geniusly added like variants to the cards. So like mm-hmm. you earn these cards as you play it, but you can go into the store and you can spend whatever the, the currency is. And, you know, they've got eight bit pixel style art. They have a whole line of Alex Ross art. They have Dan, a, a, Dan, yeah, a, a whole bunch of artists. They also have like, which is my favorite of variants. They have a collection that are called band variants and it's all the characters playing music instruments. So I have a morph playing saxophone 
and I have one of multiple man where it's all Madroxes in a band themselves, right? Like it's just like <laughs> what level are you on? In what like what's your collection level? I just crossed a thousand. Wow. I'm at five seventeen. Yeah. Are you guys playing against other pe- real no, people? No. So they is, so currently right now, when you choose to play, you're playing against real people. Yes, you are, but it's random. So like, I can't play Josh. Well, I know. I just meant right. like you're, we, you're, no playing, play, you're playing real play people. Computer. Yeah, yeah. Right. And what's great is that the the cards all have different kind of aspects to them. So some cards are really designed around movement. So like Vulture and Multiple Man and and Doctor Strange, they move cards around the board. But other cards are set against destruction or like whatever. So I've got – and you can make multiple decks, by the way. So like I have a collection of cards. I've got hundreds of cards. But each deck can only have 20 cards per deck. And so like I made a deck that is just basically like nuisance. Like you have a Hobgoblin card. And when you play it, it, oh. it jumps over to your opponent's side and gives them negative eight points, right? So I have a deck that's all designed at ways to screw with the person I'm playing, right? <laughs> Which is just always like, at the end. <laughs> yeah. I was, I've been playing with a move deck. It's hard, but it's fun. When you play the Dr. Doom card, two Doom bots spawn off of it and go to all the locations, Right. So like every time you play it, it's a different experience, which I think is part of what makes it so addictive. Did you play Hearthstone? I did not. Did you try it? I tried it. Yeah, I was familiar with it. Yeah, because it was that one year where we played a lot of Heroes of the Storm, and I played yeah. a little Hearthstone, but I never really, didn't get into it. Didn't really like, and I just yeah. didn't, it wasn't my thing, so I didn't try Snap. Yeah, this is I give it. I mean, it is fun. You know, it's I mean, Marvel. It, uh, admittedly, it's yeah, it's Marvel, but like you know, it's it's wacky. It's everyone's obsession currently. Yeah. <laughs> well, Josh, I'm glad to hear that you're playing it. I'm sorry it's addictive. I'm going through the same thing. Like we're we're putting the kids to bed, and I'm like looking on my phone. I'm doing it. And Carrie's like, "Can you just put it away, please?" So, <laughs> well, you get on a streak, either good or bad. Exactly. Well, my whole thing is that like I don't want to stop playing on a loss, right? <laughs> sure. So like I'm like I just keep going until I win. And like you have not. Josh asked what my collection level was, and I'm at a thousand. But you also have like a I forget what it's called. In each, they have like a season, right? And so, like in your right. season, you have a level. So I'm currently at level 51, but like there was a point where I I'm was on like 63. Uh, oh, nice! <laughs> I was at level. I was like at level 44, and I had a losing streak, and I ended up like when the dust settled, I was like 33, and I was like shit. So you had to climb all the way back up, like and like you're you're motivated to keep playing, and so yeah, it's, it's crazy. smart. Yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. What's also fun is, again, on the nostalgia tip, though, those of you remember in the 90s, the old LucasArts games, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis and Maniac Mansion. Mm-hmm. But the Monkey Island series was one of my favorite, favorite computer games of my whole kind of computer gaming childhood. So I was immensely elated that the original creators returned and they've released a new game called Return to Monkey Island, which continues the story of Guybrush Threepwood and the pirate LeChuck and the whole Monkey Island mythos in a wonderful, visually stunning, awesome art style adventure game. And I just love this game so much. I love this whole world. I'm glad I can return to it. So I wish I had more time to dedicate to finishing it, but I am slowly making my way through the adventure of Return of Monkey Island. I think I talked about Assassin's Creed Valhalla last year. Yes. Eventually at this point, and we're going to talk about the last game I was playing, but I was I had a fairly strong addiction to a game. And when I finally quit it, I needed something to fill the hole. I got into a thing where I played games at night. Most nights. I happened to install an Xbox behind my computer monitor on my desk, which was a mistake. Anyway, I finished Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I finished up Assassin's Creed Origins, which I hadn't, uh, I just like didn't quite finish it at one point. And then I was like, what do I do? So I bought the pack that included Assassin's Creed 2, 
Brotherhood and Revelations, which is the Ezio trilogy, and I played all of them through. So basically, I went through like six of these things in a short amount of time. I just love the the idea of there that it's all set in a place in history and you get to run around. I mean, it's not it's not like it's amazing. You're learning a ton of stuff, but it is really fun to go backwards and, and sort of see what they got right. If you ever like sort of read about that period or whatever. And I don't even know how to tell you if they're any good or not. I just like I want more. It was a it was a problem, but I think I'm out now. I think I'm going to stop for a while. But that sure was you are for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you. <laughs> Similarly, I think to that is I was doing something. I think we were watching something that I was not at all interested in. And I was looking for something to distract myself while we were watching this thing. And I thought, man, in the early 2000s, I really loved playing tower defense games on my computer. Oh, there's so much fun. There yeah. must be tower defense games for the iPad. So I went to the oh. Apple store and I was, you know, Googled best tower defense games free. Well, actually not free. Uh, the first one was free. Damn it. They got me. That's how they get you. And so uh, everyone seemed to be of the idea that Kingdom Rush was the best tower defense game out there. So I downloaded the first Kingdom Rush, which was free, or it was like a buck or something, and proceeded to play that for weeks, all the time. If I had five minutes, I'd play a match. If I was in a meeting that was really boring, I didn't need to be in, I'd play it during the meeting. Nice. I I cleared all the levels, I cleared all the difficulty levels, I cleared everything you could possibly clear. So I moved on to Kingdom Rush Frontiers, and I cleared all that out. I moved on to Kingdom Rush Origins, and I cleared all that out. <laughs> and I'm currently playing Kingdom Rush Vengeance, which I don't like as much as the other ones, but... What are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? That's all I got. <laughs> I got to keep pushing the new for the high. I got to keep going deeper <laughs> to, get, to get that feeling again. <laughs> I like the idea of it. You know, you've got to stop this horde from coming. It's just fun to They're do. Fun. They're fun. If Marvel made a tower defense game, I'd play that. I'll pass that along. That's Tell them to idea. do that. There's, yeah. there's a market. I'll buy <laughs> hey guys, at least four versions. I got an idea for you. <laughs> I will pay at least five bucks per version. So let them know. I just always loved that back then, the idea of the strategy around it. It's almost like the RTS, but on like a faster version of an RTS where you have to first figure out the, the best way to configure your base to stop the incoming horde of different creatures. And it's fun. If we're talking about addictions, I'd say my big problem this year was uh, NBA 2K22. I bought it when it came out in fall of 2021. I played around with it for a while, and then I actually figured out the mode my team basically it's it's a mixed online thing where basically there's eight seasons over the course of a year and there's a goal to get to every season which is like some big card or whatever which are different basically you want to get different basketball players on your team and then you play games with those people they're all real players or whatever but some cards are way better worth more than others blah 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 and i got into it bad Real bad. <laughs> I spent money on fake currency. Oh, Josh. Oh, dear. Josh. Like, not a ton. Like, it wasn't like I had to keep it a secret, but I did it. And I, <laughs> I hate, I hate paying for game stuff like that, especially if you've bought the game. But I did it. And, and what happens is at the end of the year, the game kind of ends. Like, they stop doing new content for the mode I was playing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to. There was a point in February where I took a day off. And I was like, I got to get to 40. And I did like 10 hours. And Lindsay was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And I was like, yeah, but I, and I made it. I got my Yao Ming card. And so when it ended, like, do you remember after we got to level 60 in World of Warcraft? And you're like, what the fuck do I do now? And I, and I turned it off and never went back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I got to the end of it and I was like, I, I, I got to stop. But I had to have nothing left to do, basically. And that's what I ended up with. And then I got out. And of course, a month after that, they're releasing 2K23. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. And I didn't. And then every once in a while, you're like, you know, is it on sale yet? 
and I never <laughs> bought it. But but also, apparently, the reviews are pretty crappy about it. So I I think I've kicked. But who knows what it's going to be like a year from now when they make it good again or whatever. But it was like it was bad. Like I said, Marvel Snap was a problem. It's not the but the, but this was. I did find it incredibly rewarding, like in that, like, you know, monkey touch the get the treat kind of thing over and over again. Yeah. Uh, those endorphins. I'm just so glad that I'm story didn't end with now. you owing some serious people some money. Listen, I'm, I'm in I'm in real deep. <laughs> There's a Chinese syndicate and they want their they want their virtual currency. They want it now. All right. So let's turn to the home stretch. Now, we, as I said, at the top of the show, we normally talk about comic books every week on our pick of the week show, Josh and I. And uh, we like to end this show highlighting some of our favorite books from this past year and in quick succession we're not going to go deep into them because we do that every week on our show but these are just some of the books again some of the books we enjoyed a lot this year some of our favorite ones there are others that didn't make the list because we only picked five each but that's the way we're going to do it we're going to start off with the human target the miniseries from tom king and greg smallwood which i think is probably overall the best comic i'm reading right now it's gotten five picks of the week out of the last six issues from both Josh and I, and it, and also I think Ryan picked one as well, our third co-host sometimes. It is so good. The art is out of this world. It's a great murder mystery. It's a noir story set in the Justice League International characters. And I cannot believe how good it is. It might be my new favorite Tom King book, If It Sticks the Landing, which we have, I think, three more issues to go. But, oh my God, every time there's a new human target, I'm so happy. That reminds me, just this little note. When I was watching the Fletch movie, I thought, this is like a Tom King story in a comic mm. book. I could see it that way. Anyway, well, hey, let's Tom King it up anyway. One of the big surprises of, of the year, I don't, I don't it's uh, really, it ended this year. It ended at the beginning of this year, yeah. Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow by Tom King and um, Bilquis Evely. I'm probably saying Evely. it wrong. Yeah. And it was this Supergirl Western road trip story which i did not expect i did not ask for i, I did it not was true want. grit yeah that's what it was i loved every issue of it i think as an artist Evely was something i'd never seen before you know a completely different style but one that fit told the story extremely well the visuals were beautiful every time the characterizations were fun and the sort of imaginations and the you know like tom king's not a guy who does one kind of story it was all alien and crazy stuff and uh, it, it was just a delight every issue if the Human Target's the best overall book, Batman Superman World's Finest is my favorite ongoing series by far in comics. Mark Wade's return to DC after the Dan DiDio left, along with terrific art from Dan Mora. This strange Silver Agey sort of Bronze Agey bubble that Mark Wade's created, this weird continuity. It features tons of DC characters. It touches all my DC buttons. It touches me on my DC place. We've talked about a lot in the show. He just gets it. Mark Wade just really gets these characters and what they should be like and how they should interact. And Dan Moore's art is so beautiful. It's clean. It's action-packed. I love the versions of the characters. Even when he redesigns the suits, they make sense. It's a book that I was looking forward to when it was announced, and I cannot believe how good it is. I'm always living in fear of reading an article that says, this book has been canceled just because that's how things go. But until it mm -hmm. does, I'm just going to enjoy every minute of it as I've been doing so far. It's terrific. That Texas Blood... And there's no credits on here, so probably I can't remember everything. Uh, Jacob Chris Phillips Condon. and Chris Condon, that's the one. You want to talk about a book that constantly got better. At first, it was like, these are new creators. They're doing this other kind of book, but it's cop stories from rural Texas. And it jumps around in time a bit. And just every arc is better than the last one. It is quiet, and it is suspenseful. 
it's dangerous, but it's it's grounded all in reality. There's no supernatural. I'm wrecking my brain to see if there was, but you know, it's it's not it's, really. It's the kind, not really. Yeah, I like it more every time an issue comes out. I also I don't want it to go anywhere, and it's been it's it's come out very regularly too, and so uh, keep it going as long as you can. Daniel Warren Johnson makes the most dynamic and exciting comic books to the market, at least in terms of the big from the big companies, and do a power bomb. His Image Comics miniseries is no different. It's crazy. It's a intergalactic wrestling tournament, and it's perfectly suited for his incredible and dynamic and exciting style of art that is like no one else making comics. I just want him to keep doing these these stories, whether it's Beta Ray Bill or do a power bomb, whatever comes into his brain that makes him excited to draw. I'm here for it because no one does pages like him. No one does action like him. It's a wonder the stuff he does with the pages sometimes. It's really quite quite good. Eight Billion Genies was uh, from Charles Soule, and Connor's going to tell me the artist, Ryan Brown. Ryan Brown, yeah. It's Ryan Brown, I think. Yep. They had worked before on the one about the magician. Again, another really unexpected book that I didn't ask for, but one that is so imaginative and so, like, the scope of it is gigantic. Everybody on Earth gets a wish. Here's what happens. Humans fuck everything up. And, and there's a lot of stories. You know, the genies have personalities. It's just, it's very, it's very fresh. I've never read a story like this. And again, every, you know, I think there's much fewer issues than I expect. Like, I, I think I, I think whatever total. the last one came out, I was like, right. But that, like when the fourth one came, I was like, there's only four issues of this. Oh, right. I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it just feels like there's a lot more of it than there is, which is great. But uh, I'm enjoying that one a heck of a lot. I always check out a new She-Hulk series. She's a character I really enjoy. I always have. And there's been a, a succession of very good ones. But this one is probably one of the best. This is Rainbow Rowell's series. It's sort of like a romance comic with Jack of Hearts. It's had several picks of the week this year. It's delightful. It's funny. It's sweet. You never really know where it's going. And she's just a fun character to be around, to spend time with. It's a book where I was like, this is a pretty good book. And by the the fourth issue I was like, this is a very good book. And by, by now, it's like, this is a great book. It's just gotten better as it's built its story. I had the same sort of sequence with her Runaways book, I yeah. think. She gets it. She gets She-Hulk. All the characters that showed up feel right. She gets the Marvel vibe. She's a terrific writer. Speaking of books that we loved, Dan Slott's Fantastic Four book for 60-ish issues. Um, So a good part of this last year, as it sort of finally wrapped up its long run, I could say that's been my favorite Marvel ongoing book, I think, in a while, and certainly while it was coming out. And again, it's that same thing, like at first, it's like, oh, this is really fun. And then as it sort of picked up speed and went through, like, it was the one I looked forward to. And it was simple. It was very simple. It was like, you got the Fantastic Four formula right. And when you do that, it makes great comics. I think it ended when it should have, but I would have taken more. Sure. It was one of those, that was a gift. It was good old superhero comics for quite a while, for a good run. A long time. Yeah. Long time. Long time. My book of the year last year, still terrific, even if it got nudged out by World's Finest, was Nightwing. Bruno Redondo continues to be a revelation. If you look back on his stuff in Injustice, it was solid. And you see sort of this germination of what he's doing now, but what he's doing now seem to have exploded out of nowhere. He's doing these incredibly inventive covers, and he's doing incredibly fun interiors. That one issue that was all sideways, where it was all basically one continuous image for 22 pages, was you know insane. He continues to draw terrific 
Dick Grayson, Barbara Gordon romance comic that Tom Taylor's writing. I'm just very happy that Nightwing was brought from the edge of oblivion by the previous regime and is now headlining one of the best books at DC in all of comics. I'm really enjoying it. Again, in the surprise area, Matthew Rosenberg and James Tinian are working together on DC versus vampires, a book that should be terrible. And it isn't, it's a ton of fun. It's one of those books, a lot like deceased that Tom Taylor had done where the setup is corny and it's very silly, but the characterization and what happens in it is all incredibly true to the things that you love that I love the Connor loves about these characters. Mm -hmm. And even though it sounds like a really dumb pitch, they get that part right. And when you do, everything else falls into place. We're getting to the end of the main story. There's a couple of spinoffs now. Yep. And I really can't wait to find out what happens. I have no idea. I'm very curious to see if it's going to be like Deceased and it's going to continue on to another series. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of time left and you could. there's a lot of cleanup that that, mm-hmm. that should happen. So it was a big surprise for me. I, I had missed it. And then I, I sort of picked up one of the spinoff first issues and I was like, oh, it's actually really good. And I went back and I read everything that had come out flew through it this is Otto schmidt on art for that one yeah so those are some of the comics we enjoyed we enjoyed a lot of comics this year those are some of the best but if you want to hear more about that you can all listen to the pick of the week show we'll talk about a lot more of those every week and hey that's it guys we've done it we talked about some of our favorites in movies and tv and books and music and games and comics and in the year that was 2022 we made it ron you okay i'm hanging in ron's hanging in right. hanging in Let's wrap it up with some plugs, Ron. Why don't you talk about the shows you've been doing or the things you've been working on? Everything I'm doing. And so if you listen this far to the end, you get a little bonus. So I'll share behind the curtain. So by day, uh, if you want to know what I've been doing over at Marvel, just go to marvel.com and you can go to youtube.com slash Marvel or follow Marvel on Instagram or Twitter and you can see uh, what I do. Everything there. Everything. I do everything. I, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm very lucky to work with the but team. it was too late. Ron had done everything. <laughs> very lucky to work with the team at Marvel Digital Media that does all Marvel social media and all that fun stuff. The website. Get to work on cool stuff. Comics, video games, movies, TV. It's uh, consumer products. It's uh, Disney parks. It's like your own little all media show every day. It's, yeah, every day. It's a blast. It's so much fun. So if you, I, I get a feeling people listening to the show might like Marvel. So if you guys like it, continue subscribing to Disney Plus, please. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> But on my spare time, I still do a weekly podcast over on the Twit Network called All About Android, where me and Jason Howell and a rotating third chair of other guest hosts, uh, Huynh Thuynh Dao and Michelle Ramon and Florence Ion and other great folks come on. And we talk all about uh, Android phones and mobile phones and the whole world of mobile tech with a focus on Google and Android. I've got my new Pixel 7 that I'm loving. It's a great new phone. Lots of discussion around phones and software and things like that. So if that's your speed, you go to twit.tv slash AA and subscribe to it. But I also have a fun startup called Scorbit, which is all dedicated around pinball. If you play pinball like I do, download the Scorbit mobile app for iOS or for Android. And you can keep track of your uh, pinball scores. You can earn achievements. You can challenge your friends to beat your score. Lots of cool stuff. And then if you've got pinball machines of your own, you can buy one of our devices, the Scorbitron, that helps you connect your pinball machine to the internet so that can interact with the app and you can automatically save your scores. It makes it super easy. It's been a fun year for pinball. Coming out of the pandemic, you know, uh, pinball shows and locations and tournaments are, are back to almost full strength. So it's great to see the pinball community kind of uh, bouncing back and continuing to play some fun games. So check it all out. I have a free idea for you. Let's hear it. Score a bit, but for Marvel Snap. That's a good idea. <laughs> work, He's work connected to the internet already. Yeah, I think, I think they've already taken care of that, actually. Question for you about all about Android. Yeah. 
you're constantly having to try new phones, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're constantly talking about them. I try them when when manufacturers want to send them to me. But uh, the whole group, there's a lot of phones rotating in the discussion constantly. But do you ever want to just go back to an old one? Like, oh, I like the other one better. Or no, no. So, uh, no. I, I don't know if I've ever gone backwards. Really, they don't let you do that. All right. Just, so. just curious. Yeah, Maybe no. like really like the six more. Right, but the differences are negligible, to be honest, Ever between forward. the six and seven. Yeah, so Ever always forward. forward, forever forward, Connor. So there you go. That's where you can find Ron. And if you're looking for things to listen to over the holidays while we are on break, here's some of the shows we've been doing recently. We did a Black Adam review. We reviewed She-Hulk Attorney at Law Season 1. We reviewed Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We reviewed Batman Superman Battle of the Super Sons. We had our media explode in, in uh, November. We did our, our year-end mailbag to answer a lot of emails. And just recently, Josh and I reviewed Namor Visionaries, John Byrne, Volume 1, and for our Booksplode show. Those are all shows you can listen to if you need more shows from us while we're on break, which starts now with this show at the end. We are done for the holidays. We'll be back with Pick of the Week 860 on January 8th of 2023. And oh my God, it's going to be 2023 very soon. Shut up. How did that happen? Insane. All right, kids. Let's wrap it up. Head over to ifanboy.com. You can find all of our shows, all the video, all the um, audio shows that we've done over the years. There are well over a thousand at this mm-hmm. point. You can find Almost the history of all the comic book writing. When this was a full-time ongoing concern, there are probably thousands of those too. It's almost too much. That's what I'm saying. But oh, we had tons of writers. We had people who contribute a lot of great stuff. It's all there. That's the It lives there. Uh, you can go to Facebook.com slash iFanboy or at iFanboy on Twitter or at iFanboyComics on Instagram. You can find that what the pick of the week is before the show comes out and be ready for it in all of those places. Uh, you can follow us individually. Connor and I are both on Instagram at CS Kilpatrick and Jay Flanagan, respectively. And uh, Ron managed to get Ron XO on Instagram and Twitter. So that's where he is. You can subscribe to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash iFanboy. All the old video shows that we did uh, for years are there, and we post this show every week. It's there. Not this show. This is a special edition show. Right. But, right. You know we don't, we don't put the special edition shows up? Nope. Just a regular pick of the week. That's crazy. Well, you have places to get all these things anyway. I'm done with that part. I'm tired. That's fine. <laughs> and hey, if you like the show or any of the shows we did all year, Consider as your holiday gift to us writing a review or leaving a star rating wherever you listen to shows, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere. Anywhere podcasts are sold. We appreciate that. It helps people find the show. It helps the algorithm feature us. It's the best thing you can do for not just our show, any show all about Android, any show you listen to, please consider leaving a star rating or writing a review as your holiday gift to that show. And they will appreciate you even more. Help us spread the word and the love. We appreciate that. And that's it. That's 2022 in the books. It's a wrap. Really, 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 thanks for listening. If you listen to any show this year, one show, all the shows, it really does mean the world to us. We like to grouse and we like to joke and be grumpy sometimes. It's part of the gag of the show, but we do appreciate doing the show and we do appreciate anyone who listens and we thank you for that. And we hope we pass the audition. So (laughs) until 2023, I am Connor. I'm Ron. Josh Flanagan, not Esquire. They took that away. All right, see you next year. Jingle bells, jing, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. I love those J-I-N-G-L-E bells. Oh, those holiday jails.